Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 46 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. It's me, as always, from the west coast of Canada, Trevor Game, and also, as always, it's from the east coast of the United States of America, it's Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we're back for like the third time in a month. Many podcasts would call that par for the course. For us, it's an absolutely amazing undertaking. I mean, a lot of these podcasts that review like shows and DVDs, they literally do it once every week. So we are still behind the curve when it comes to uh, to that stuff. So, um, um, so I think that um, everybody should hate us. So hopefully they do. Exactly. Even when we're doing more, we find ways to be negative about ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and um, on the other hand, I was reading an article today about how they're studying whether or not coronavirus could be spread by farts. Uh, so um, <laughs> all I'll say is everybody stay the F away from me. Uh, finally, your weekly Googling of fecal oral contamination finally pays off. Well, you don't know how close to true that is. <laughs> <laughs> um. But something else that will pay off for every listener will be listening to some of the other great podcasts on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. And I always like to plug a different show each episode. This time I'm going to plug the same show I plugged last time because you know what? If you have me on your show, you get an extra plug. Um, I'm going to plug Who's Next. Well, really I'm plugging it the second time basically because unlike the last time we plugged a show – My first episode is actually out. So Who's Next is Stephen Graham's new podcast about Bill Goldberg's career. It's going over his career match by match from the beginning like some other podcast. And uh, I'm going to be – I'm on an episode that's already out covering Goldberg versus Wrath. And I'm on another three matches – I mean the next three episodes, which are each covers a match. So I remember having a lot of fun. They're shorter podcasts. I believe this first one – is in the under 40 minutes, and I think we recorded four in a little over 90 minutes, so the rest should be even shorter. Um, I remember having fun. I remember talking about Goldberg about only half of the time. I also remember I got pretty deep about what Goldberg meant to, like, as a Jewish sports hero, which I have to admit, Matt, I felt completely guilty because I was like, I'm not Jewish at all, and I pro- and I do a podcast with someone who's far more eloquent and actually is Jewish who could probably speak to this topic far better than I ever could, but I try my best. All right, so let's get into it. Goldberg, Jewish sports hero. Let's do it. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I plan on um, listening to this podcast while we're recording this so I can get a cool Trevor Dame voice doubling effect going on. Oh, God. That's that's two more Trevor Dames than anybody needs. I only half only half as much as I need. I can't. I I like I the first few episodes of Through the Years. I uh, would listen back to parts of it just to see how it sounded and to pick up like things I was doing wrong. But I haven't listened to anything I've done probably in two years. Like I. I can't listen to myself. I just, I just can't. So even like the who's next, I thought, oh, I should listen to this to see how Steven edited it and to see, you know, what specifically made it into the first episode so I can plug something specifically. And I was just like, nope, I, I can't, I can't subject myself to myself. Um, well, I will uh, be subjected to you so you don't have to because I love listening to anything involving Trevor Dame and oh. this one is high on my list. Well, I, I do remember having a lot of fun. So, um, and I have no good transition next, but we actually have for once, the last few Ring of Honor shows, 
were very close together. And so we didn't really have any news that happened between the shows, which I usually like to start off the show after the plugs with before we get to the show review. This time we just have a couple tidbits. It's not much, but a couple things I found from the Observer at the time. I'll just read. Uh, IWA, the, the Puerto Rico IWA, not the Japanese deathmatch one, not IWA Mid-South, the U.S. Indie. IWA this past weekend ran what was called the Ring of Honor Invasion with Homicide B.J. Whitmer and Dan Mothin, although all only worked mid-card matches. On July 30th on in Coamo, or uh, Coamo, I, uh, I, want to, I want to just preempt, preempt this by saying... I apologize to anyone listening, especially if you live in Puerto Rico, because I'm likely going to butcher some of these city names. But anyway, in Cuamo, before 500, Homicide and Bad Boy Bradley, who is Jeff Bradley from Florida, lost to Ricky Banderas and New Jack. Um, Chicano and Slash Venom, a.k.a. Flash Flanagan, drew Dan Moff and BJ Whitmer. On July 31st in Yako, before 1,000 people, Chicano and Venom beat Homicide and Whitmer, and Banderas beat Homicide, said to have been a great match. When, whenever, 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 like I read a result that somebody drew someone, I'm always like, for a split second, I'm like, is that like an angle? Like they drew them and they didn't like the picture, so they got into a fight, like something like that. But now I realize it's just they went to a draw. I'm always imagining just them getting drawn, just like uh, Kate Winslet and Titanic. Like, ooh, even better. Draw me, do Jack going. Draw me like your French girls, homicide. <laughs> uh, but I just thought this was a little interesting, just because you know it's only 2004, yet you know poor people in Puerto Rico felt like this is worthy of branding these shows Ring of Honor Invasion and bringing some guys in. Which it's kind of interesting to see who this early people kind of thinking like when JAPW and Ring of Honor run a co-promote show, that's not a surprise, but this was a rereading this through the newsletters was a bit of a surprise that already in mid 2004, grad, they only brought through three guys. It was also kind of interesting because I always think back to when I think homicide from this era, how so many people like there was uh, people back then they would write homicide off and say, Oh, he's just a new Jack clone without realizing like, Homicide's the furthest thing from that. You clearly haven't watched the match. So it's interesting. It kind of blew my mind to imagine like Homicide and New Jack actually facing each other in a tag match in 2004. Like I actually have, I don't know if this may tape or anything, probably not, but actually I'm sure there's probably Homicide New Jack matches that did make it because there's everything out there. But this was the first time I really thought, oh, this actually happened. Like Homicide actually wrestled New Jack somewhere. Yeah, I bet it. I wonder if that was the only time too because. You're right. They, they did have that sort of connection, I guess, just because they were both had like kind of like gangster type vibes. I don't. Yeah, I don't. You, yeah, like dark skinned people whose gimmick is they're kind of you know streetwise and wearing do rags at some points. And you know, Homicide was a guy who would wrestle. You know, he had no qualms about wrestling in a more garbagey match with some plunder, but Homicide would also wrestle basically, as we've discussed through the years, like Homicide was probably the most versatile indie wrestler of his generation. Like he would wrestle basically every type of match. Yeah, and so we're sort of saying that part of the reason they they, they were put together like that is a little bit of racism uh, and mixed with a little bit of like their kind of like the way they presented themselves in terms of like street toughness. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, I don't think that kind of stuff would happen now. Cause I think people 
Well, I mean, I guess it would, but it doesn't seem like it's as prevalent now as it would be, at least in the yeah. wrestling circles. Maybe in other circles, stereotyping is maybe more prevalent than ever. But yeah, uh, but, but, tw- but yeah, but like better. yeah, like Twitter, Twitter online wrestling would be more cognizant of making problematic comparisons. Yeah, you'd think. And, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm giving them too much credit. Hopefully, we don't have to put them to the test. But yeah. Uh, the other little note, this is actually more about an older show, but it came out when I was looking through old Ring of Honor newswires for this show. And it's from a July 27th, 2004 Ring of Honor newswire. Uh, this is just one of those funny little Ring of Honor jokes. CNBC has sent word to the Ring of Honor offices that Baron Von Raschke will never be hired as a financial analyst for goose-stepping in the ring last Friday. So this is referencing at Death Before Dishonor 2 Part 1 where the show opened with Baron Von Raschke coming out and goose-stepping to a big pop. And I don't know if we mentioned that at the time, but I guess this must have been then right around the time that JBL... Yeah, 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 I mentioned it. It was in the... On the oh, tour. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was the June... Two, I think June 2004 German Germany tour when he did it so clearly this was just them you know poking a little fun at jbl but it's is it kind of sad matt that when i was reading this and it, it reminded me of that jbl thing that i was thinking like oh it was kind of quaint back when this was a big wrestling controversy because it's not cool to goose step in front of a german crowd but if like that was the worst wrestling story of the month like this month that would be like a breath of fresh air compared to some of the stories we're hearing this month. That is true. Although I will say, I think we especially can verify on this podcast, 2004 had its share of pretty bad wrestling stories also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we might have spent like three hours covering just one. And uh, yeah, so if you go back to the At Our Best episode, which is six hours long, the first three hours of that is just us covering one Bad wrestling story. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and that's just all the news for the shows. There wasn't that much news between – not that long of a distance between Death Before Dishonor Part 2, Death Before Dishonor 2 Part 2, the double deuce, and uh, Testing the Limit, which is the show we're covering today. Testing the Limit t- took place August 7th, 2004, once again at the Ramada Inn in Essington, Pennsylvania, which is right close to Philadelphia. That's, the, from, that's, the, that's the same place they had Survival of the Fittest, right? I, I, cause it, looked, I, I, it looked a little different, but also the same. So I mean, there's a chance it could have been a different Ramada Inn. I didn't check the city, but I, I have to imagine it's the same Ramada Inn. Yes. In front of a reported crowd of 450 people. Uh, a couple of things before we get to the show itself. A few little things happened around the show. First, from The Observer, uh, Christopher Daniels was actually at this show to do a DVD shoot interview. They tried to clear it with TNA to let him work the show, but TNA wouldn't allow it. It's a weird deal because TNA is letting Shelley work, even though he's now a regular on their show, but has offered Ring of Honor some and, – and has offered Ring of Honor some other guys if they want them, but won't allow Daniels and AJ Styles, which are the two guys Ring of Honor wants to work. Um, so yeah, that, that's, we cover this, I think in greater detail in the, at our best show, which is also our big Rob Feinstein, 2004 story fallout episode. But yeah, this was the show, I guess, where Christopher Daniels wanted to work this show. He had an open booking and he was there before the show recording one of the very first straight shooting ring of honor produced shoot interviews. And they just told him like, no, you can't do it. So I wonder what he would have been slotted in. Like, it would have been interesting. It's interesting to think, like, what they would have done with him on this show. Well, he would have had to have addressed CM Punk, right? You can't, like, just let that 
like kind of go by. But Punk is a baby face now, so it's kind of interesting. You know, it's it's interesting. I haven't felt the shows have missed AJ or Daniels at all. Like they've gotten better since they left. Not like it's not that not that they're the reason the shows got better. Although in a roundabout way, I guess it sort of is because it lit a fire under Gabe to go in some new directions and try some new things that have mostly worked. But you know, I, I don't think that I would have really wanted those guys to like necessarily come back at this point as a fan. Obviously, for the company, it would have been good. But when they did finally come back, I don't think that like the shows were made dramatically better because of them. No, and, and like I know exactly what you're saying. It's nothing against those two guys, but it's just I felt the depth of the company with the Generation Next and Nigel starting to catch on and Jimmy Jacobs starting to catch on and get a little more regular bookings and all sorts of things like that. Like the depth actually got better when when I was revisiting all the research around this time. All the talk was, oh, their depth is going to be ruined. They don't have enough star power now. And even when I go back and listen to shooting interviews, like I was re-listening to the Samoa Joe straight shooting for trying to find more information for this episode – just curious if he talked about this show, which he didn't really. But he, you know, he talks about during that show, like, um, oh, people felt like Ring of Honor had lost a step during this period, and I kind of felt like that too. So I had to really step up and stuff. It's like, I think you and I, like, the, going to our most recent reviews, I think we feel like it kind of gained a step, like. But also, I feel like reputationally, that's true. Like this, like this era starting with maybe like Generation Next or World Title Classic, is one of the most fondly remembered eras. You know, like I, I, so I don't, I don't remember even before it was a Ring of Honor fan, like mm-hmm. hardcore, which really started mostly in two thousand five. I, I knew that oh four, the second half of oh four, was really the era that people really looked upon fondly. Not so much oh three. Um, so I don't know if like – I think there was almost a consensus that things got better around this time for people who kept watching anyway. And I think also part of the thing – and you're right. It's not – certainly nothing – not the fault of Daniels and uh, AJ that things were better you know, like you know, when they left. But I will say when they finally do come back, I do kind of think that they left their best work in TNA, if that makes sense. Like if you watch them in TNA, they had – more great performances there than they were having in ROH at that time. TNA was their priority, so I think they brought a diff- just a different vibe to their ROH work than they brought to their TNA work in terms of urgency. You know, not that they were dogging it in ROH, and I guess we'll we'll see when we get there. But I, I feel like it's hard to explain. Yeah, that, that's why I'm really interested in uh, revisiting because I think that is, that is true. The perception is definitely that when those guys came back to Ring of Honor in the next year, they yeah, I think you're you're the way you put it is good. They weren't dogging it, but Ring of Honor was maybe no longer the place they were putting their absolute like ten out of ten effort. Maybe they were down to like eight out of ten. It was more like their their biggest priority beyond behind their big priority, if that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. So um, and also as the other thing, I couldn't find out this information. But obviously this Ramada Inn was never like what was supposed to be the main Philadelphia location. And we know that they were there for survival of the fittest because of a mistake, because of a problem involving their booking in in Baltimore getting canceled over some of the uh, RF scandal stuff. So I was curious, were they back here on purpose or was there another problem that led to them coming back to this smaller venue? Like was it another situation where they wanted to run the armory – but there was like military or National Guard stuff like happened at um, Generation Next or were they just not selling tickets? I was I was unclear of that and I couldn't find any good information about it. 
I'm not sure. And I'd also be interested, like, was it a good financial deal to book a show at the Ramada Inn? Because there were a couple downsides, and there are things we'll go into during the show, but one of them is the ceilings for the show are pretty low, which a few wrestlers acknowledge in various ways. But there's also something else that happens, Matt, I don't know if you even know what it took place, that we'll talk about later in the show, which is kind of a special problem you get when you try to do wrestling angles at a hotel. And we'll <laughs> we'll talk about that a little later, but um, and this was a very busy weekend for Ring of Honor apparently because going to more of the news around this show, um, I guess just to remind people this was right around the time this was shortly after Ring of Honor had broken away from Rob Feinstein officially and started you know basically doing in a way their own version of our video where they weren't maybe as extensive as our video, but they were selling DVDs of various promotions and producing their own shoot interviews. And so they were producing the first batch this weekend, I guess, because PW insider wrote that Samoa Joe also filmed the shoot interview on this day. So Christopher Daniels did Samoa Joe did. And we know two cold Scorpio. In fact, I believe Shane Hagedorn has said that two cold Scorpio was the first interview shoot interview recorded for the Ring of Honor straight shooting series. So all on the same weekend, or probably the same day, they did Two Cold Scorpio, Samoa Joe, and Christopher Daniels. So, you know, they were working hard this weekend filming footage. A couple other little tidbits. Uh, the PW Insider wrote that the SATs were backstage visiting for the show. He says, I don't believe there are any plans for their return to the company, but they were backstage visiting. And he also wrote, Jill Gertner from ECW popped up visiting as he was in the area. So everyone came to the Ramada Inn to watch uh, Austin Aries and Brian Danielson. It, it, I do feel like it is kind of interesting. Like, uh, if you were to make a wrestling Seinfeld, you, I think you could probably make an episode or a wrestling curb your enthusiasm about like what it would what it's like when you're the wrestlers who have stopped been booking been booked for an indie but you still show up backstage to like see your friends because I feel like if that was me like I would feel really awkward like yeah you guys kind of let me go but I'm still gonna hang out here like maybe that just speaks to my insecurities and potential bitterness but I think. I think probably for some guys it's awkward, and probably for other guys they're really everyone's really happy to see them. And the question is, are you self aware to know which one you are? <laughs> yeah. But it, it's just interesting to think the SAT SATs were backstage during this. And uh, the other thing is, this was another one of those shows where uh, Ring of Honor wrote in their newswire that they had a bus trip from New York City to Philadelphia for fans that wanted to see the show. Oh, I hope I hope the Hit Squad were on the bus. <laughs> it was another one of those shows where it says uh, they wrote on the Ring of Honor website, fans on this trip will get to see an exclusive screening of selected matches from Ring of Honor's Death Before Dishonor weekend, including Samoa Joe's world title defense versus homicide and the much talked about Chicago street fight pitting CM Punk and A Steel versus Dan Moff and BJ Whitmer. And I still think that's a really cool idea that Ring of Honor did at least a couple of times to do on these bus trips. Like you're going to get to see matches that haven't even been released yet if you get on this but and two and two awesome matches that's a hell of a deal yeah if anything like that's better i mean i I, i'm not to tip my hat on the show but not that this show was bad by any means but that's better than a lot of matches on that on this show are are those two matches you know you're getting well sure there yeah they would be uh among the best matches on any show really yeah exactly yeah yeah so that brings us to the show itself 
we we're back after the death before dishonor weekend. We are back to backstage segments. So we open backstage with Colt Cabana conducting a new installment of Good Times, Great Memories. His first guest is Prince Nana, who is flanked by the Outcast Killers. Uh, Colt wonders where Jimmy Rave is. Nana says Rave is in one of Ghana, um, one of his villas in Ghana, getting rubbed down in places Colt has never been rubbed down before. Um, he's like the yeah, like but like between his toes. I don't know. <laughs> so lots of what's a weird what's a weird place to be rubbed down like your earlobe i don't know <laughs> uh so yeah rave is apparently preparing for his run to the top of ring of honor nana says rave is also the inventor of the styles clash or styles slash whatever you want to call it um <laughs> poor nana clearly has forgotten the name of uh, aj styles finisher he says it will and now he- be known as the rave slash yeah he i was gonna say he <laughs> i had to i had to, i had to say that one i'm sorry no, no, I'm glad he did, but like he picked the wrong one. It's clear, like in his head, he's like, was it the Clash or the Slash? And then he just decides it must have been the Slash, and he goes, it'll be known as the Rave Slash. And I was just like, oh, Nana, you had a 50-50 chance. Bad luck, you know. And speaking of um, racism, Colt makes some vaguely racist jokes about the names of African countries. Like he is from the uh, the kingdom of, and then just like says some kind of name that sounds like an African-sounding name. Like yeah. just not the most respectful. Yeah. Uh, Nana says he's been working on the Outcast Killers for the last couple months, and they've been doing pretty decent. Uh, Cole, at this point, starts fake crying, thinking that the band Outcast is dead. Get it? Uh, the- Get it? Outcast Killers? Like, yeah. like Oma and Tortuga killed the two members of Outcast? <laughs> <laughs> Big boy, brutally murdered by Diablo Santiago. But, uh,. The killers want to know when they're trying to – I mean the killers want to know when they're going to get the same kind of treatment that Jimmy Rave is getting. Nana tells them to shut up. Be thankful they're not still working the ring crew like Donna Marcos. And then he tells them to run a bubble bath for him the last time the bubble bath was too cold. He says, um, run the bubble bath warm with bubble bath soap. That's what he said. I, I don't know. I love Nana. I love Nana. He's so ridiculous. I've loved my real life interactions with him that I had many, many, many years ago. He is just such a character. I honestly think he he could have been okay, even like on a bigger stage, but it was not to be. Yeah, it, it sucks that you know he just came up in an era where manager you know and basically i guess you could say that for any manager in the last 20 25 years or more that they came up in an era where managers aren't really appreciated and don't have as many venues to really ply their trade and it sucks because yeah he definitely could have been a good manager somewhere definitely like in like a tv promotion that would have given him more opportunity to be a manager yes for sure and that brings us to the opening match, the Ring of Honor Pure Title Number One Contendership. The winner of this match gets a future Pure Title shot. Uh, John Walters defeats Nigel McGuinness via pinfall in eight minutes two seconds with a roll up. He counters Nigel. Uh, Matt, this is a you know not a long match, but what do you think for an eight minute match to get the show rolling? I thought it was. It was good. Like, I mean, you know, like faster than I thought it was. Maybe I would have liked it a little bit more, but I guess the early matches were short because they knew how long the main event was going to be, but they were just like going at it. Like, you know, they were just working really hard and the crowd was really into it. You know, they were, they were slapping each other, being aggressive. Um, they were, you know, Nigel was doing his wacky reversals and his trickery. You know, he went for his arm finisher early. Um, I like that. Um, 
Walters hits like a, a lung blower, but from the front. And then later on, he does like Nigel does a leapfrog over, leapfrog over him, and then he do, then Walters does one from the back. Um, he does the t- uh, Nigel does the Tower of London, and Gabe is like extremely impressed, like he's never seen it before. I feel like he has done that move before, right? Um, yeah. they, they hadn't named it yet, but he did call. But he has done it, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's done it at least once or twice in Ring of Honor, and yeah, you can tell it's still not familiar to Gabe because I think he calls it a stunner bulldog combination. Yeah, but but like I just I loved the pace, like I loved how hard they were working. Um, there's really not much of a story to the match, but like. It was all action, you know. Um, I like, you know, they kept going for their holds, um, and uh, eventually uh, Walters uh, headbutt Nigel while he was in his um, Indian deathlock, and then he turned it into the key lock and rolled him up in a key lock. So it was kind of a different kind of finisher for Walters. Um, but they were really, really motivated. I also want to mention the uh, the lighting on this show. It's definitely different from Survival of the Fittest. It's not all like dark and like grayed out, but it's still bad. <laughs> it's like bad in its own different way. It has this like weird, like almost like orangey hue, like almost like it was like a a cane match from the nineteen ninety seven. Like I don't know how to explain <laughs> it, but like it's like it's a weird. It's just the light. It's just it's just fun to me that the lighting is still bad, but a total different kind of bad than the last time they were in the building. <laughs> you took like the words out of my mouth. That's a perfect way to put it. it, it I, I wrote in my notes like the lighting is bad again, but in a different way. I guess also not only is the orangey hue, like you said, it's also another show where it's not color balanced. So like the lighting is better, like the lighting color scheme is better when you see the hard camera. And then when you, whenever you get the, uh, the ringside handheld cam angles, it's noticeably more orangey. So that's like kind of off-putting where – Again, like it, it's just not consistent even. Exactly. And of course they do the thing that happens in a lot of ROH shows where the glare from the corner lights always goes right into the camera on when, the, when they talk yeah. – when they do the handheld cameras. But that's a constant in ROH for many years to come. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I completely agree with you about the quality of this match. I thought this was a good match. It kind of felt to me – it was – it's kind of interesting where um, for a match that's a pure title contendership, not only did they not do uh, any of the pure title rules, but they didn't really do almost any mat work. This is almost all action. It's very, like you said, fast-paced. Uh, Walters is wrestling with a little bit of a mean streak, slapping, uh, not quite a heel, but he's like slapping Nigel in the face, yelling at him. To he's, aggress- he's aggressive, and I guess he does turn heel pretty soon. So Yeah, so maybe hints of that here even. But... Um, this felt like the last eight minutes of a 20 minute match that these guys would have, but in a good way, like it felt like you were seeing like the stretch run of a longer match and they were just going like really, they were going for it with bigger and more interesting stuff right from the get go. I felt like both guys look good, but I felt Nigel was the star here. And it is that, that kind of interesting point of Nigel's career, which I think we've talked about him being in before where fans like, know him enough now to start recognizing his signature moves but there's still a novelty to them so they're still like really popping bigger than they might be in a year or two because they haven't taken them for granted yet and you can even hear that in commentary because like we mentioned um gabe doesn't really know yet to call his finisher the tower of london uh you can tell punk is like really impressed by that divorce court kind of arm ddt where he grabs the arm and kicks the guy's legs out from under him so like stuff like that, which will just be commonplace Nigel stuff. It still has a bit of a novelty, I think, to everyone in this area watching it at this point. And it's kind of neat because I think Nigel's one of those guys right now where you revisit these this era 
you can maybe it's because it's just in my head, but you can you can kind of feel him gaining a few new fans with every match he wrestles now. Like I I can just imagine every time he wrestles and people see like the headstand. Like I think Mike Johnson's live report was this like this was the one where he wrote something like Nigel McGuinness does this really cool move where he does a headstand and then in the corner and then kicks guys down. Like it was like he first saw it, and I feel like there were people coming away from Nigel every match he had at this point going like, oh man, there's this guy just doing this really cool stuff and he was making new fans every show. So, yeah. And, and, um, I, um, I also, you know, he's Nigel, you know, you could tell he's just really wants it really bad, even early. I mean, we talked about, I got, I don't even know how many months ago it was that we recorded this show, but that random match in Ohio against TJ Hawk, where he does the super famous headbutt hardway bleeding spot, um, uh, against the ring post so um we know that nigel is just um he's just he's just really gonna work hard pretty much every time we see him so he's a lot of fun to watch yeah and especially when you hear like the stories i believe people said uh, the people who worked with nigel very early on in his career was like he is one of the wrestlers that's come the farthest like when he first started training you he was not a natural you would never believe like you wouldn't think he was going to make it and he just kept working until he got really good and even just watching how hard he took when he had to retire. Like you can tell this is a guy that's just a hundred and ten. Like he, he worked his ass off for everything. He wasn't one of those guys who makes things look, look effortless. Like he, he clearly put his heart and soul into getting as good as he got, which again, it's sad that he did not get the career he deserved, but yeah, that Nigel documentary with WWE was very good for the record. Um, so yeah, this was a fun match, you know, a little on the short side, not much story, but just for an opener, it's a good burst of nothing but action. And especially after the last show, Death Before Dishonor part two, that where, uh, other than the main event, everything felt like really good workers having good matches, but kind of holding back this at least did not feel like they were holding back at all. So I, I really appreciated that too. And that brings us to. The second match on the show, that is Roderick Strong defeated Izzy, who was escorted to the ring by Angel Dust, Becky Bayless, Cheech and Cloudy. And Roderick Strong wins in 631 via pinfall after he hits, I guess what you would call a cross-armed spinal shock. Uh, This was a fun match. I felt like this was mostly felt like a squash slash showcase for Strong with Izzy getting a couple moments to shine. Uh, Izzy gets like the first minute. He hits a super fast start where he hits... uh, a few of his moves and then strong catches him with on a Rana attempt. And then he swings him really hard into the guard rail and ring post. And most of the rest of the match is Roderick dominating. And he hits, you know, most of the stuff you would come to know as a signature moves his, he does hard chops. He does backbreaker variations. He does a delayed vertical suplex. Cause he's strong. He does a couple painful looking submissions. Uh, is he gets a little bit of a comeback. He hits what looks like a flipping, DDT, but his arms never really get around Strong's head. But luckily, the camera angle changes really quickly. The move is done really fast, and Strong totally like lays out face first on. So unless you're like a nerd like me who goes, that looked a little off, and you go back and freeze frame it, like to figure out why it felt off to you, you wouldn't even really notice. And it was a cool looking move. And the end, which I referenced, is really cool too, which is a. Izzy Strong is throwing punches. Uh, Izzy Strong first throws a right-handed punch, and Izzy catches it with his left arm. By he ties it up, and the Strong throws a left punch, and Izzy ties it up with his right arm. And there, 
while they're still holding arms, Strong just basically like turns Izzy and lifts him up into a neck, like a hanging neckbreaker position where um, they're back to back and Izzy is basically held by his crossed arms on Strong's back. And then he does the spinal shock, and which is a really cool, like inventive, not his regular finisher end to a match. And this was another match, I think, Matt, like the uh, the Nigel match, where you can tell, we see a guy is just starting to catch on because this is one of the early times where we get like a Roderick's gonna kill you chant, where Roderick is now starting to get this imita- um, reputation of something, which in his case is like, oh, he's gonna just beat the hell out of somebody, especially if he's wrestling a, a special K guy. So it's cool to see all these guys. A few months ago, we saw a lot of these guys start to become regulars or debut, and now we're seeing a lot of them start to you know, get a bit of a fan following here. It's, it's a cool moment in Ring of Honor history. Right, because they've been in this area a bunch of times already and because the videos are coming out. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, this is this is a basically a, sp- a squash, but Izzy gets to look good while getting squashed, like taking good bumps, uh, kicking out a lot. Um, and it also, for further Special K storyline, which is that they're depressed, they're in a rut. Um, so I like that. I like the delayed vertical suplex. You know, I like the, um, I like the, uh, like the, the, I guess the pop that he does when he like gets like these big power moves. Like he just really, he really connects with them in a, in a dynamic way, I guess is the best way I would say it. Um, Izzy doesn't get to do too much. Like you said, he gets a little bit of shine early and he gets an unassisted slice bread number two, which allows a fan to yell French toast number three, uh, which <laughs> I enjoy for you. You, you messaged me when it happened. You were so excited about, and you know, there's a lot of annoying fan things. I think we could both agree. That's a good fan. Talk. Yeah. And actually on this show, I could hear a lot of random fan yelling. Like, I guess because of the way the venue was, like, it was very easy to ha- uh, hear certain fans just yell certain things. And that was a good one. Um, Punk is back on commentary. No Mark Nolte. So, Punk, we get some things that are, quote, some gems and some not-so-gems. For example, when Gabe calls Roderick Strong the Messiah of the Backbreaker, Punk says, of course he's the Messiah of the Backbreaker by default. He doesn't know any other moves. And, you know, that works because Punk is mad at Generation Next, of course. There is Next Feud. Um, Also, in a less good thing, Gabe calls Becky super cute, which is weird in its own right. And then Punk responds, hey, where do you get off calling her super huge? So... You know, 2004, everybody. Um, (laughs) Being creepy toward women in two different ways at the same time. Um, So you got that. Um, But uh, no, all in all, I thought this was a fun squash. Roderick Strong does a camel clutch to Izzy, and he really steps at Izzy's back. He puts his foot right in it and pulls back. And it's almost Danielson versus Jack Evans-esque. It's a really good submission. But yeah, that's the only thing I forgot to mention. And um, PW Insider, their live report from this match, I guess we should note there's a lot of uh, editing, I think, on this show, maybe more or more noticeable editing than you'd see on some other shows, in part probably because the main event is 76 minutes long. So um, I guess they cut this in after this match ends, they go right to the next segment. But I guess after this match live, Roderick Strong laid out Cloudy and Cheech's Special K. Strong was then menacing Becky Bayless when Angel Dust hit a flurry of moves and ran him off. Mike Johnson wrote, I guess it's going to be Dust versus Roderick next. Works for me. I, just to know, we saw none of this on the uh, the home release. 
We just see the end of the match immediately next segment. So, you know, they, they had to trim stuff to make this fit onto a three-hour DVD. Yeah, except for entrances where, like, they're noteworthy. They just they cut out the entrances almost completely, especially yeah. in these early matches. And we cut to Alice in Danger in the ring. She is still wearing a neck brace from taking the cop killer from Homicide two shows ago. She's cutting a promo that's really hard to hear over the awful PA system at the Ramada Inn. And the crowd is chanting against her. We can hear that she's still – I could make out that she's still mad at Moff and Whitmer. She still owns their contracts and can book their opponents. She introduces the Carnage crew and we cut out their ring entrance as the show is definitely, you know, again, like you just mentioned, we're keeping the edits tight to fit in everything. Uh, Danger tells the crew that there's no one they can't beat up and she wants them to torture Moff and Whitmer tonight. Uh, DeVito snatches the mic away from her and says they have to listen to their nagging wives at home. They're not going to listen to a bitch like Danger. Uh, DeVito says they fight for themselves and tells her to get out of the ring. And we immediately take another jump cut right to the match itself, which is the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke defeating Moff and Whitmer in five minutes, 39 seconds, when DeVito pinned Moff hit after he hit after they hit like the spike second rope pile driver. Um, so this is another thing, Matt, before I throw it to you, where I guess live the timing I got from live reports was nine minutes, 17 seconds. But what we saw, I timed out only as five minutes, 39 seconds. So I'm going to guess they edited out almost four minutes out of this match again to make things fit. And the other thing I didn't know until I did the research for this was, according to Mike Johnson, uh, DeVito actually got to the show as the first match was starting due to travel issues. So the match they put together with so little planned was great considering the circumstances. So yeah, this was apparently, he just barely got to the show in time for this match. Wow. So, uh, what do you think about this hastily put together brawl on the outside? Reminiscent of Samoa Joe at Arena Warfare in 2006, where he misses his main event because of uh, flight delays. Um, but uh, so DeVito has, besides getting there late, has an auspicious start because he starts by going up to danger and saying, We don't listen to our goddamn wives at home, so we're not going to listen to a bitch like you. Which makes me say, and since the crowd pops when they hear the word bitch, just makes me say, Man, wrestling was so incel back then, wasn't it? <laughs> like, it was just like, that was the whole vibe of the entire thing. Maybe, maybe less so the mainstream stuff, but definitely indie wrestling, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like I said, I've said it a million times, it's that ECW influence sticking around. I feel like it's definitely less that way now, but I don't know. Probably there's still some strains of it. Um, I think back to that – just sorry to interrupt, but I think back to that that, uh, show in 2003 where they got Jeff Hardy in and – you know, there was a bunch of extra female fans there just for Jeff Hardy. And you could tell, like, the male regulars, some of them resented it. Like, they were angry at the at female fans that were not usually there. Like, like they, they were, instead of being, oh, this is cool. It's a bigger crowd. There's some more women here. It's like, goddamn fucking women at our Ring of Honor. Show. Like, just oh, I have, angry. in like 2007, I literally heard people in line to get into a Ring of Honor show say that. Like, oh man, the women being here that ruins everything. I literally heard that. <laughs> um, so, like, yeah, what your your interpretation is what people said. And just to add to my point, on commentary, Punk refers to Alice in Danger as a, quote, ugly bitch. So was that just, like, considered totally innocuous at the time by the audience that would watch this? I guess so. Crazy. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's you know, this is the first of three tag matches on the show that start out just brawling uh, around the ringside, like – 
every tag match on this show starts out that way. This is the first one, so it doesn't seem redundant yet. But they're they're just brawling on the outside. Moff goes for a tope, and Loke throws him headfirst into the guardrail on the way down. And there's just a lot of smacking and chopping at ringside for a while until um, Moff steps on Loke's groin, and Punk says, Loke usually pays women to do that, but Moff is doing it for free. <laughs> and Gabe is very confused. Um which um, so Punk has to explain. You know, some people are into that. Um, um, so then in the ring, they go right to the big moves. Um, I guess you said it's edited, so, but like there's a burning. Uh, Loke escapes a burning hammer, hits Saido suplex. Devito goes for a moonsault on Moff, but he rolls out of the way and hits a big clothesline. Um, Whitmer hits an exploder, which Gabe calls a nice suplex, which is one of the something that I've noticed a few times recently where Gabe didn't notice that a guy hit their finisher. Um, that same thing happened with the Border City stretch at uh, Death Before Dishonor, uh, one of those shows. It's weird. Like I was, it's like that's clearly the thing that's been his finisher or like one of his big moves for the entire time he's been in ROH. But Gabe was just like nice suplex. Did you notice that? Yeah, it, it, it's a, and it's it's a little more acceptable when someone like Nigel, who's probably only done it once or twice in Ring of Honor, but B.J. Whitmer's used the Exploder quite a long time at this point in Ring of Honor. Yeah, so every everyone's suplexing everyone at that point. Danger sneaks down and pulls Moff's leg while he's on the top rope, and he gets crotched, and that allows um, the spike pile driver to be hit by the Carnage crew. So it wasn't – I wouldn't say this was much of a match, but I, I also wouldn't say it was lacking in excitement. Maybe because of the editing, it felt pretty action-packed and pretty entertaining. Uh, definitely wasn't like a particularly good match, but it was enjoyable for the length of time that it lasted. Yeah, um, it, it was kind of your regular brawl on the outside, but I felt – and a lot of times I don't where, – where it feels just kind of meaningless and plodding, but I felt like these guys brought good energy to the bit that we got, and it was one of those things where it was short, but I, I, I enjoyed – You know, it wasn't anything special. It's not something you're going to remember or need to go out of your way to see, but I enjoyed it for what it was. But it was also one of those ones where I felt like if this went on much longer, I probably would have soured on it, but at the amount of it we got – I thought like it was pretty enjoyable, and uh, Devito. I, I liked one moment where Devito hits his big drop kick on the outside, and it looked like he sold the drop kick like land, like just landing from a drop kick as much as his opponent sold from taking the drop kick. Like it was a Herculean effort for Devito even just to launch himself into the air by a few feet and fall. Which, to be fair, for a guy with that much mass, it probably is a big effort to. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would be tired. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we got uh, Moff's big tope, which he breaks out sometimes, which would be, it's kind of sad for Moff because he does have a very good tope, but like when you're in the same promotion as Homicide, who does that amazing, like world's best tope con Hilo, like no one's tope comes, cl- or, and even Samoa Joe's like elbow suicida through the ropes. Like I feel like in a different promotion where those two guys weren't around, Moff's big tope would be like, way more impressive and crowd pleasing where it's kind of like the third best big man dive or I guess almost like it's not a big man, but just guys who wouldn't expect to do crazy dives like that. Um, and then I, we, we got also a big belly to belly suplex from Moff on DeVito. And I wrote, that's a lot of belly. And then I felt guilty for writing that, but it's just because, you know, uh, DeVito's a very much one of those guys where, Almost all his extra weight is carried in his midsection, which I heard is not good for your um, cardiovascular system. So, folks, if you've got a big stomach and not much big else, be, be careful out there. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, okay match. So at this point, another thing we didn't see on the show, uh, PW Insider reports, Gary Michael Capetta came out, and this is where they announced that Jim Cornette, Stanley, and Dennis Condry, and Bobby Eaton would all reunite as the Midnight Express on the promotion's return to Philadelphia on October 2nd. Uh, Mike Johnson wrote, they played the Midnight's theme after the announcement. It got a pretty big pop, which surprised me as Ring of Honor's audience skews younger. I thought the interesting thing, I didn't get this quote, but I think uh, Meltzer wrote it in The Observer. He noted that basically every Ring of Honor show from this point to, I think, like early November had some big name booked for it. From, for, booked for it. Like uh, Foley was booked for shows. Steamboat was still doing shows. You got the Cornette thing here. Later on, they hadn't, I don't think they had announced it quite yet, but Liger or maybe they had, I'm not sure, but, um, you know, and I don't know if this was Ring of Honor's response to finally finalizing the sale and break away from Feinstein, or if they felt like they really needed this to try and bring fans back, but it definitely is interesting where this is probably the, hev- I mean, they've always through their history brought in big names, but yeah, they're, we're definitely entering a stretch where there's going to be at least one like notable non-wrestler name like non-wrestler as in they're not working the show in a match on pretty much every show for a while. And in the case of Liger, well, he will be working the shows. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it's interesting how much stuff they cut out of this. Wow. Like some major stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, usually I don't think they usually show the announcements. Like whenever, like, I don't think also they announce, they show the announcement of, well, maybe they do. I don't think they do of like Liger. They didn't show the announcement of Foley, which apparently got a big reaction and led to people like rushing to buy tickets from that show. But yeah, it seems like a lot of these live reports on these last few shows has been like, even reading the newswires have been a lot of like, you won't believe what we have to announce. And it was like, you know, Mick Foley one show, Midnight Express reunion one show. You know, it makes it feel, it makes the, the the promotion feel, and I guess maybe this was the idea, like it had turned a corner in terms of some of these scandals, also, which I think is pretty helpful. Like that, all these people now want to be a part of ROH. I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure, I'm sure Steamboat helped a lot with that too. Yeah, he was like one of the first. And when you think about, you know, Piper was going to work and cancel or not wrestle, but like going going to be at the Ring of Honor show before the Feinstein scandal broke and canceled, Heenan canceled his booking and, you know, Heenan would end up doing his booking late in this year, 2004. So yeah, that, that's a great point where just the fact that anyone like on Foley's level and, you know, Liger's level or whatever are willing to now come back. It show it's, it's, it's more than just, isn't it cool that we're bringing these guys. It's kind of like a sign of, it's okay to like us now. Maybe like if, you know, if these big names like us, maybe you can too, which I don't know if that's always the greatest North star to set your morals by to go, well, if wrestlers are willing to work this show for money, it's okay for me to like them. But like I do, it does, I have to imagine send a message to certain fans of like, well, maybe I should stop boycotting this promotion. Yeah. And their popularity grew. So it worked. (laughs) Yeah. And that brings us to a four-corner survival match. Alex Shelley defeated Ace Steel, Jay Lethal, and Two Cold Scorpio in 14 minutes, 58 seconds, when Shelley pins Lethal after he hits the shell shock. Um, Before the match, Alex Shelley gets on the mic and he says he just has to say something. And what he has to say is, Flash, you are so funky. So having a little fun with Too Cold. Uh, Alex says he's going to use Too Cold as a stepping stone, just like they've used a steel as one in Chicago. Uh, Shelly then turns his attention to Jay Lethal. 
He says that Jay's serious now. He doesn't do drugs anymore, and Alex is sure Jay's parents are real proud of him. This gets some laughs and a sheepish, sheepish grin from Jay as he turns to look at a section of his crowd, which I assume was where his mom, who frequently came to the shows, was sitting in. Um, Shelly says Jay belongs to Generation Next, and he's going to give him one more chance to join. Uh, Jay says he's not going to take the shortcuts anymore, though, and from now on he's going to earn what he gets, so the answer is no. Shelly then jumps him, and the match is on. So- I, I have to say, I thought Flash You Are So Funky was a pretty corny burn. I usually like Shelly's pro- uh, commentary, I'm not commentary, uh, promos, but that was pretty uh, that was pretty dorky, I think. And I also think the Generation Next stuff, like, it's getting a little tired where every single match, the line is always like, you know, we're going to make our name on you. We're going to, you know, take your spot. Like, it's the same one line he's saying. And, you know, Alex Shelley is very good on the mic, but he's saying he's got the same one line for every match now. Like, so-and-so, you know, we're going to take your name just like we took Ricky Steamboat. It's like the same thing. It's getting a little repetitive at this point. But I then again, I have to remind myself, not everyone is was watching and buying every single Ring of Honor DVD. So sometimes repetition was warranted. But... Um, so yeah, this was two cold Scorpios. Only, I believe his only match in ring of honor, at least I think of the Gabe era, my knowledge of ring of honor gets way worse after that, but it's the only match I can remember two cold Scorpio did in ring of honor. Uh, he was living in Germany at this time and was working as a regular in pro wrestling. Noah. in fact, in the match, they acknowledged that like he and a steel were are like friends from working together in pro wrestling Noah. And they, t- and they and, talk about Noah in the match and they're talking about how they wrestled Kenta, Mara Fuji and Liger. And Gabe was like, I'd love to have those guys in ROH, uh, but he doesn't think it'll ever happen, which I guess, you know, to tease the Liger appearance. But I, what I felt found most amusing about that was like punk. He said, you bring in Kenta and ROH. I'm there. I'm calling that match. And I'm like, well, he did bring in Kenta and punk was not there. Yeah, I actually thought that was such a funny moment. I actually clipped that and put that on my Twitter. And someone said something like, you know, did that get to happen? I had to tell them, like, no, like, Punk left in the middle of 2005 and Kenta debuts at Final Battle 2005. So basically, he missed Kenta by half a year. You know, it, he, he could have been calling. If he stuck around just six more months, he could have been calling Kenta and Ring of Honor. But just missed it. Um, so, yeah, Scorpio at this point was living in Germany. So it wasn't he wasn't a guy they were going to get to book regularly, but I actually enjoyed this match a fair bit, and it was mostly because of Scorpio. I, I think something I found as I rewatch all these four ways is there's generally two ways four ways with some rare exceptions happen. They're either like basically scramble matches where they're just crazy spot fests, or everyone just trades off and they try and do these short little three to four minute mini matches where it's like, okay, you tag in, you can wrestle me for a few minutes. I'll tag out. You wrestle this guy for a few minutes. And it's not, it's kind of like mini matches and not really a spot fest. And I found watching all these shows, I much prefer the spot fest because the mini matches don't really have a lot of momentum to them. Sometimes, sometimes they also do a third version, which is almost like a tag team match where like they team up and somebody gets the heat on somebody for a while. Oh yeah. But generally yeah. speaking that you're right about the formula. But but uh, this match was more of like the mini matches, but which I usually am not the hugest fan of. But I liked it because so much of this match was about Two Cold Scorpio, and it was just really fun to see him in Ring of Honor. I felt like he looked pretty good. He was almost thirty nine at this point, and watching this match, I realized that uh, Two Cold Scorpio is this guy where I think he's one of the most like low key consistent wrestlers where everyone 
you know, everyone, you mentioned Two Cold Scorpio, pretty much everyone's like, yeah, he's awesome. But you kind of take it for granted. Like, even in this era, like, whenever I see him work in indie, I, I always just think to myself, oh, Two Cold Scorpio, this will be good. And he almost, he, like, pretty much every time is good. Like, you just kind of take it for granted that he's consistent. I think at this age, he still had his athleticism, his execution, you know, and the whole match is kind of built around him. Like I said, you you can tell watching this match, I feel like, that everyone really wanted to wrestle Scorpio, especially Jay Lethal and Alex Shelley, and everyone gets their chance. Um, I thought Too Cold did a really cool thing late in the match where he starts, like, tagging guys in and directing traffic, but then he'll be like, you know, you tag in, you hit him with this move, and then afterwards he'll, like, double-cross the guy. And I felt like he was really smartly playing the four-corner match where I don't know how many four-corners matches Scorpio's ever worked, but I felt like he was actually kind of working the stipulation really well. And, yeah, I I think most of this match was fun just because, for me, it wasn't, you know, particularly great. But I just – I enjoyed the novelty of seeing Two Cold Scorpio in Ring of Honor and looking pretty good in my opinion. Um, Matt, I've read online some reviews – I saw a couple of reviews that were pretty negative on Too Cold Scorpio's uh, performance in this match, saying like he was dogging it and he was selfish and stuff. Like, so am I crazy or are they crazy? And I'm not going to name anyone because I don't want to shame anyone. And you have a right to your opinion, but I'm just curious to see if you can break the tie. Yeah, I um, I'm closer to you. I don't maybe didn't like it quite as much as you, but I thought it was pretty good. And I did think that Scorpio. Honestly, I definitely don't think he dogged it. I think, if anything, he did more than I expected. I did not expect him to be quite as much of a focal point in the match and be in as much as I thought he would be. I mean, as much as he was. Like, I thought he would be in much less, and the other guys would work the body of the match, and he would come in in for some big spots. That was my expectation going in. I don't know if you had the same expectation. Um, But he was really the guy who was the main person in the match. Like, he was the glue. Everybody had their little, like, challenge against him. Like... Ace and Scorpio, they sort of did their indie respect match. Then you had Lethal, who was like kind of working from underneath the underdog, like trying to you know prove something. And then you had Shelly, who kept poking everybody in the eye, um, which I which I liked. Um, but I you know I, I definitely thought that um, Scorpio was working really hard. He did all of his big moves. It, he was a little bit methodical. You know, there's a lot of time in between each move, um, but he had good kicks. Um, you know, he had um, he, he teamed up with Lethal a little bit. He uh, he teamed up with Ace a little bit, and then and then double crossed him. So like Scorpio had his like finger in every little pot, which I liked. I, I really thought that he was um, very present in the match in a way that I did not expect. Um, and he had, his moves looked good. I liked the the power bomb that he gave on uh, on Lethal. I liked that, you know, he kept being sneaky. Like I said before, he held Lethal for Ace to drop kick him, then he hit Ace. Then he was double teaming Shelly with Lethal and he set Shelly up for a Lethal headbutt, but then when Lethal went for the headbutt, he rolled Shelly out of the way so Lethal missed. I just liked that he was being sneaky, that he was having personality. Um and I liked um, you know, but then like they still put over Shelly in the end. And I think I feel like everyone was put over by this match. I thought uh, Scorpio looked good. You know, Ace Steel doesn't usually get to have a lot of like matches on his own, and I thought he was allowed to be pretty good. Lethal definitely felt like the up and comer, and Shelly got to win. So I think everybody kind of won in this match. So I would say a pretty good match. It was maybe a little bit slower than I would have liked, but it was pretty good all in all. And I think the yeah. psychology was sound. 
Yeah, I feel like, you know, some people are going to say, oh, well, Scorpio's the guy only coming in for one match and he's the older guy, so he's taking up too much of the match. But I feel like you're kind of da- – that, like you were saying, they struck a really, I think, good balance in giving Scorpio a highlights and giving you what you want to see but also putting over other guys because, you know, it's like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because how many times have we seen in wrestling where an indie book's a big name – and they do like four signature spots and do as little as possible. And that's really disappointing to see. And to Scorpio's credit, he did, you know, you got your money's worth booking him. He spent, you know, he worked a lot of this match and like you said, basically kind of directed traffic and, and ran the match. And in fact, a point I'll make from a Mike Johnson news report on this, he wrote, Scorpio looked to be in great shape and was working really hard. He did an impromptu seminar with a lot of the boys before the show, working matches with them and giving them tips. It was something he just offered to do on the fly as opposed to something he was brought in to do. That says a lot about him. So again, I saw, you know, one review saying that, oh, you know, Scorpio is selfish and stuff. To me, you know, it sounds like he was the opposite where he, you know, was going out of his way and we'll get to in a second. He goes out of his way to put over the company and Jay Lethal after the match. So it sounds like he was like a very good booking for this company and an example of a guy who, uh, you know, spent his one booking there trying his most to help everybody out. I agree. uh, I agree completely. After the match, Alex Shelley gets on the mic again, and he apologizes to Lethal for making him look like a sack of shit in front of his parents. Uh, Shelley says he was wrong about Jay. He's not Generation Next material after all. There's a fun moment where mid-promo, Alex Shelley promo, A-Steel balls up his ring tape and throws it at Shelley, and he hits him as Shelley's mid-sentence. And Shelley just pauses and goes, ouch, on the mic. And it's kind of one of those things you have to see yourself, like I can't do it justice. But it was a funny moment that got some laughs. Um, Shelly says it doesn't matter if it's Brian Danielson, doesn't matter if it's CM Punk, doesn't matter if it's that washed up garbage wrestler Mick Foley. They're climbing over the top of all of them to get to the top of the card. Shelly goes to leave, but Jay Lethal challenges Shelly to a one-on-one match. Uh, Too Cold then gets on the mic and he says, this shit is for real about Ring of Honor and says it's the real deal because each and every one, because e- because of each and every one of us in the fa- in the crowd, the fans, uh, Scorpio says this is the first time he's ever seen G.A. Lethal and he puts him over as Matt, you might guess, uh, the real deal. I, I, I even wrote, I even wrote after that, this show should be called the real deal. Yeah, uh, I, you can tell after this one promo, Scorpio likes that phrase. Uh, they hug. Too Cold's music hits as he proceeds to show off a few of his dance moves in the ring. Uh, Lethal keeps going to leave the ring, but Too Cold wants to teach him to dance. Uh, He eventually gets Jay to do something. He does the Rick Rude hip swivel to some high-pitched screams from the crowd. And then Scorpio starts pulling down his trunks to the degree that we can see his ass and his, like, what looked to be maybe thong underwear underneath? I, I don't, that might be the picture for this show. I might have to go and screen cap that. Wow. That's a bold, uh, it's, a bold, it's a bold choice, Trevor. <laughs> uh, but luckily he stops before it's too late, before it becomes a picture I couldn't use for the screen cap of the show. And um, he stops, the two hug, they laugh, they pose for the crowd. If, if, if Jay Lethal was still hydro and still on those drugs, he would have danced because he was a raver. <laughs> he would have done like some rave moves. <laughs> Um, I, I thought this was just fun. You could tell, you know, it was like a genuine thing and Scorpio was really having fun. And, and again, just an example of, he didn't have to do that, but he kept wanting to, you know, entertain the fans and put over guys, you know, a lot of other wrestlers would just have probably gone to the back, but 
he did this whole extra little thing, and yeah, uh, it was really cool. And they put it, and they kept it on the video despite all the edits. So I appreciated that. Um, yeah. It is funny watching Jay Lethal at this point, and you realize how completely miscast he was as a party animal. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's so sheepish and kind of like, especially when you consider his mom is in the crowd all the time. Yeah, he's a little bit. He's a little bit dorky, right? Like, I mean, I don't say that with any, um, you know, malintent either. He just, he just was. Yeah, he, he's kind of like just the the shy, lovable, quiet kid in the back of the class. Yeah, and to think he started out as oh, you know, hydro. He he loves the weed. He loves the party. Like, he, you know, he yeah, he doesn't come off that way, and. This was, yeah, another match, too, where I think fa- – I wrote in my notes, Matt, for this match. People in the crowd were, I think, mocking Jay Lethal's mom by making high-pitched screams when he's on offense. Or is that just his mom? I can't tell. Like, that's something I wrote. It's hard for me to tell. I'll go back and listen, but decent chance that it was, in fact, his mother. <laughs> this was You mentioned earlier how this was a show where, for whatever reason, you could really hear fan comments distinctly. There was one during this match – where a few fans were chanting Alex Shelley and you could hear clearly hear one fan yell and like being angry, stop cheering the heel. Oh yes. Yes. I remember that. (laughs) This was definitely the era where heels were starting to get cheered on the Indies. And there were some fans and you know, I would prefer if it was strict face heel, but there's something so dorky about just screaming out, stop cheering the heel. Like, Like it's, I don't know. It's just, it was just funny. You he's still so he's still a he's still a heel to me. Damn it! <laughs> like you're not cheering right. And again, I'm not necessarily completely unsympathetic to his point, but it's just there's something about saying it. It just it just was just funny. Um, well, I also liked one last thing, really important that I don't miss this, Matt. At one point, Alex Shelley bailed to the outside, and Roderick Strong blew on his pecs to cool him off, and. I just had to mention that. It, it was a fun moment, and I wonder if that would actually work. Um, if, uh, this summer, Matt, I'm going to ask someone to blow on. Well, first I'm going to have to get pecs, and then I'm going to have to ask somebody to blow on. Tre- Trevor, that is optimistic that you can get close enough to somebody that they can blow on you <laughs> and that it would be an okay and not dangerous thing to do. I forgot for the last 20 minutes what world we were living in. <laughs> Unfortunately, I am now reminded. I apologize. People cannot blow on my packs. I apologize. Uh, well, Matt, there were so many barriers to that scenario becoming a reality. We don't, you know, coronavirus or no coronavirus. But that brings us just to as long as just as long as you don't let somebody fart on your packs. <laughs> that that fecal pet contamination, very number one killer. Um, <laughs> We go to another match that will hopefully take our minds back off the world situation. The Briscoes, Jay and Mark, defeated Homicide and Low Key, scored to the ring by Julius Smokes in 12 minutes, 44 seconds, when Jay pins Low Key with a small package. Uh, Matt, this would end up being the Briscoes' last match in Ring of Honor for quite some time. Well, at least by indie, by our recording standards, we'll probably be senior citizens before we get to. Uh, Unless, the, unless this pandemic continues before we see the Briscoes again. But I don't think this this was not intended to be their last match because they were they did have future Ring of Honor bookings. But um, Mark then gets hurt in a motorcycle accident, which we'll cover in future episodes. And Jay pulls himself off the shows as well. And then they just, you know, they do other things in their life. They take a, a break from wrestling. So without really anyone, including the Briscoes, knowing it, this is kind of, this is, well, this isn't kind of, this is their swan song for a while in Ring of Honor. 
what do you y- think about the tag match? Yeah, their last match for a year and a half. Wow. Um, so I'll talk about the match first, and then after you recap the uh, the post-match, I will talk about my thoughts on that. Um, so, like I said, this is the second straight tag match. It starts with just a brawl on the outside. They're trading chops on the floor. Um, and speaking of heels getting cheered, Loki starts the match getting very cheered, like loud Loki chant. This is his first match back in Philly since, gosh, what, since uh, Night of Champions, maybe? Um, I can't even, I'm, I'm pretty sure it might even be that that was, this is the first time he's actually had a match in Philly since then in ROH. Um, I'm not sure. But um, I actually thought that he did a really good job of getting the crowd to treat him like a heel. Um it's not the slow plotting version of his heel work that we saw at Death Before Dishonor Part 2. Um, I thought he moved a lot faster, but he still was healing. You know, they were still, uh, you know, uh, Smokes was cheating, which allowed, you know, Loki to be the heel. Smokes actually kicked and raked Jay's back, which I was um, surprised by. Um, some annoying stuff to me is just like how the ref totally misses all that stuff. Um, like, I think you were talking about this on the Death of Fortis Honor shows. Like, they don't really do much to distract the ref, right? They just do yeah. heal stuff, and the ref either has to pretend that he was incidentally distracted or just not – or just wasn't distracted and didn't care, right? Yeah, they, uh, don't, they don't protect the ref, as the kids might say. You know, they don't give the ref a good out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, the, so, the, so they get the – the crowd chanting for Jay. Loki finally gets the crowd to turn on him, but in an entertaining way. And then they, the Rottweilers do like a normal like heel tag work. They're tagging back and forth very quickly. Um, they uh, and like like Homicide, he slaps Jay and tells him he ain't shit, and that riles Jay up. But then Homicide just pokes him in the eye. A lot of eye poking on this show, I've noticed. Um, during all this, Gabe calls Loki. He says he used to be the ROH legend, but now he's the ROH disgrace, which is <laughs> which is not quite as good as saying that Julius Smokes used to be such a cool guy. But I still liked it. Uh, Loki should have gone with that as his moniker, the ROH disgrace, low key. Um, so, so Mark uh, he gets the ref's attention while Homicide locks in a figure four. On Jay, and then Loki comes off the top with a double stomp while the hold is applied. So, like, Mark is, you know, being kind of counterproductive here for Jay. But Jay does make a comeback um, when he's uh, in, a, in a, the figure four, and he hits a big Yakuza kick and makes the hot tag. And Mark hits a series of kicks, but then again, gets cut off with, you guessed it, an eye rake. Um, but he does a springboard drop kick and clothesline combo on the Rottweilers. Like he hits one of them with a, a drop kick and another one with a clothesline, which I thought was really cool. Um, and they go for the springboard doomsday, but Homicide pulls down Mark and Key gets the dragon clutch on Jay. Um, but Jay escapes, goes for the Jay driller. Key escapes and just kicks Jay in the head. Um, then Loki hits a series of kicks to Mark, grabs the leg, suplexes him in the head, and Mark. Says he's going for the shooting star press, and I don't know. I found this funny. He's like the announcers are talking about how the ceiling is too low for Mark to go for the shooting star press. So Homicide gets behind him and quote unquote pushes him into the ceiling overhang, but Mark obviously has to jump to hit it. Like it's like he like he 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 pushes him like upward into the overhang, which is not how it would work. Um, But you know what? I'm willing to spend my suspend my disbelief for that because I thought it was a kind of cool use of the space. I don't know about you. I didn't mind it. I didn't even really see like it was hard to really see like the bump. I saw more just the the impact. I just saw more marks like bump and reaction, and the crowd 
really was into it. They thought it was really cool, so I thought it was cool. But yeah, yeah. you when you actually think about it and what you actually see isn't actually that impressive, but like the aftermath and reaction is pretty cool. Definitely. And I, and I think that, you know, like I said, you, there's enough suspension of disbelief in wrestling that if a guy has to jump a little bit to hit his head on something, I'm fine with it. Um, so um, Homicide hits the lariat, but the ref won't won't count because he's not the legal man, which I thought was just hilarious. Like, since when has anyone cared about that in ROH? Like, it's so selective. Um, so Jay hits the Jay driller on Homicide. Uh, Loki goes for the key crusher, but Jay rolls him up for the three. So the Briscoes and Jay Briscoe, in his last match for a year and a half, pins Loki. And Gabe says it's the first time that Loki's been pinned since he lost the ROH title in 2002, which is crazy. Um, and I thought this was a good match. Like, I thought this was just like a, like, no caveats. This was just a good match. Like, they, they, it was fast paced. They worked hard. The moves looked cool. The, the, the match had heat. Everyone is really good in the match. It wasn't epic or like astounding. They didn't go, they didn't swing for the fences, but they just had a good tag team match, uh, that everything I thought worked. Um, I'm going to save my thoughts for the post match, uh, yeah. uh, after you go over it. But that's what I thought of the match. I, I thought this was a good match, too, uh, and I think it's a, another one of these matches where if you just look at the names on paper and the era it took place in, you might expect this to be amazing and then get disappointed. But if you go in expecting just a good mid-card tag match, you're not going to be disappointed, I don't think. Um, really fast start, and then it slows down in the middle where Jay is the face in peril, and then it speeds up again at the finish. But I think even in that middle part was elevated by a couple things. One, I think something you did a really good job describing and pointing out on the last show during the Mark Briscoe versus Low Key review is that Low Key is working different and, you know, doing things and working at a different – I still thought he was working a bit of that slower pace, you know, but he's doing it to get the fans to turn against him. And he's effectively getting some of them – He's getting some real boos in this match again, which is really hard for the indies. I think he strikes a better balance here, though, like a between yeah, between yeah. this the, the the like the more like the slower pace, but also like doing just enough that it's exciting. Yeah, and and it is also just in the middle of the match where you would expect like when you're beating down the face to see that, and then it picks up back again for the finish. And um, I thought the crowd really elevated this whole match between this and the last show where it just had the two these these four guys wrestle in two singles matches i feel like the crowd both the, on both these shows the one of the things they were most into on both each of the nights were these briscoes versus homicide and low-key matches i feel like like more than i would expect even they were just really into the idea of these guys wrestling each other and so it is a shame that they had to stop wrestling because it, it feels like there was maybe more to go like like I was just shocked about how like loud the crowd was for chanting for Jay chanting against low key and of course they were really shocked to see you know low key take a rare pinfall loss in Ring of Honor and but Matt there is one highlight of this match you missed and I'm not going to let us miss did you notice in the middle of the match somebody I think it's legendary uh come Philadelphia commissioner Frank Talent just calmly strolls through the curtain as this match is happening in full view of the hard camera, just walking like down the aisle with not a care in the world, holding a mug of coffee, just slowly walking down and he sits at the times keeper table. And it's funny because occasionally watching ring of honor or Indies, you see people that have to come through the back curtain during a match. And usually they're like ducking down and very sheepishly and 
quickly, like just you know, try not to steal focus. And Frank Talent came out like he was the next entrant in the Royal Rumble. He was just <laughs> slowly walking, holding his beverage. Just, I, I almost would have, you almost would have started just to stop in the aisle and start having a conversation with a fan. Like, he, he did not care. Did he, high, did he, did he high-five the fans? No, unfortunately. I would have, that, this would have been a great match if he had done that. I would have, five stars if he had done that. But that was a, a fun moment for me, at least. I was going, what the hell was Frank Talent doing here? And again, it might not even be Frank Talent. I'm pretty sure it was Frank Talent. I, I'm, I'm actually pretty sure he definitely was at this show. I saw him during another match, like at ringside. I think he's just, he's always at ringside for these shows in Philadelphia. And yeah. I guess he went to the back to get some coffee. I don't know. So, uh, yeah, and that brings us to – and again, it's interesting that Loki, who is a guy who really protects protected himself, you know, he loses to a small package here. And Matt, you were talking – I just realized – or a roll-up or – no, a small package. This is uh, – we're going to see another tag match coming up that where it ends with a small package. So you were talking about a lot of matches starting with the same brawling. You know, this is something, you know, occasionally you see in Ring of Honor and a lot – you see a lot of indies where – in a company that was maybe a little more, had more agenting, maybe guys would get more on the same page and you wouldn't repeat a finish in two key tag matches that are close together like that, but they do do it here. But I, I don't think it's, it's that much of a detriment or anything. So that brings us to what happens after the match. And after the match, Key kicks Jay right in the head, which, the, you know, it gets a reaction, but it doesn't come off as more than a really stiff, low key kick. But we're supposed to believe that this is, you know, he's shooting. He's, he's, you know, this is him going on like how he did on Dan Moth. He's going beyond the pale here. And Mark comes in. He tries to defend Jay, which brings out Samoa Joe to the ring to find, to brawl with the Rottweilers. He's joined soon after in the ring by CM Punk and a bunch of other ROH wrestlers who all try and break things up uh i wrote usually when ring of honor does pull apart angles they just use ref and staff so it's interesting to see this one of the ways they try to differentiate this is they brought out like the big name wrestlers including guys that you know hadn't come out through the curtain yet so this was their first appearance in front of the crowd tonight was actually just this and um everything seems to have settled down when joe hits key right in the face with like a really brutal looking punch things pick up again someone throws a chair from off camera and hits somebody we don't see who threw it uh homicide ends up hitting a camera like punching it and we see it from the camera's perspective which was really cool smokes yells do you want to die tonight uh punk and homicide then start getting into a shoving match dan moff starts screaming for everyone to relax almost doing it again kind of like almost like a work shoot vibe where it's just like, he just like, this is Dan Moff, the person like he doesn't say this, but kind of has that vibe of just like everyone stop, please. Um, most of the talent goes behind the giant curtain. They set up in this Ramada conference room, which to designate their backstage area. And then we get this really cool shot where we cut back to the hard camera, like wide shot where we see a still hurt. Jay Briscoe is being attended to in the ring. And in the background, we see one of these giant drape curtains falling down as we realize they're still brawling behind the curtains in this makeshift backstage area. And one of the curtains is just this, these giant curtains has just fallen down. Um, Smokes has to be dragged outside the building. He's just losing his mind screaming at Joe. Uh, Joe chases after him. 
and they have to be held back in the parking lot. And Joe just starts screaming, I'll put you in the fucking ground. And then Mark Briscoe has to go be held back. And DeVito has this moment where he grabs Mark and he tells him, go check on your fucking brother. And Mark goes, oh, fuck. Like he just remembered his brother is hurt and he runs back into the building. So this went on for a long time. Um, Matt, I know you have thoughts on this. We haven't talked about it, so I don't know what your thoughts are. I felt like this was a cool, chaotic like thing. I felt as far as like a makeshift riot, it was definitely like better and more realistic than the second and third. You know, it was on par, maybe even better in some ways than the first Ring of Honor riot. Um, and before I throw it to you, I guess I should know how real it was to some people. So from Mike Johnson, it was an insanely intense brawl with everyone trying to hold back Briscoe. Joe was screaming at Key that he would see him in September. And I'll just pause here and note, uh, I don't know what he's referring to because... Joe and Key do not wrestle each other, even in a tag in September, at least for Ring of Honor. So anyway, going back to Mike Johnson. At one point, a chair flung by Key hit referee Paul Turner in the head, knocking him out cold. He was okay afterwards. The intense brawl actually knocked down one of the partitions separating the crowd from the locker room before heading outside the building. They continued outside the building, which led to hotel guests calling the cops. Ring of Honor security had to explain to the police that nothing that wasn't supposed to happen took place. The cops understood and no one got in trouble, although they hung around a while to make sure. So, Matt, this was pretty crazy. Yeah, there there were things that I liked about this. I liked the chaos. I liked, like, in some parts, I liked that moment where the curtain fell down. I thought that was a pretty cool, like, oh, it's over. Oh, shit. No, it's not. Like, I enjoyed that. Um I never like the work shoot stuff, really. I, it always just takes me out of it a little bit. Like, to be like, there's two worlds, and now this is the real one, and that wasn't. Like, uh, like it started right after the match, because Gabe goes, how come there's no music? Like, uh-oh, something is wrong. Like, in a horror movie or something, right? And that's when Key walks over to Jay and kicks him in the head. Now, this is another thing that I didn't love about this. I didn't get why that kick to the head which we see in a million matches, is supposed to be this egregious thing that sets off a riot. Like, I think that's the biggest problem. Is the, is the, it doesn't come off like anything worse than a really stiff, low-key pro-wrestling kick. I guess we're supposed to believe because Loki has the reputation for being stiff and because he, he did accidentally knock out Dan Moth, but it doesn't come off like that. Right. It's easy. He, walked, it's, he walks over and kicks him hard in the head. There's like a almost like there's like a sound. I don't know if it's like a knee slap or whatever. And Jay gets knocked out. But that's when just things pop off, right? Everything goes crazy. Marco's after him. Then Punk is like, I'm getting out of the booth. I'm going to go help. And then, and you know, they talk about how things are unprofessional and something weird is going on. Like they say that. Like I, I just never like that stuff. If they hadn't gone there on commentary, I would have been okay with it. But yeah, then everybody coming out, you know, Gabe says we have to go to intermission. And, uh, you know, uh, this is, by the way, when I notice uh, Frank Talent, I realize in my notes, like they're all brawling at ringside and Frank Talent just kind of like walks by uh, around the corner of the ring. It's Got like another coffee. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, at one point, Smoke says, you want to die. If, by the way, you, you cannot make this seem like a real thing while also having Julius Smokes just overacting the way he does. You know what I mean? Like, I get that he's a character in real life, but like if there was a real dangerous fight going on, I just, even Julius Smokes, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm an idiot, but that he would just be like, say, like, you want to die tonight and just like being wacky. Um, and Loke goes, I like that fucking die thing. That's funny. 
and somebody is yelling, everybody relax, which I think is funny because I wasn't sure who was saying it. But it's like, guys, come on. We got to calm down. Um, I enjoyed that. Um, a lot of guys saying they're going to kill each other. Um, I don't know. I thought it was it was cool in a lot of ways, but it did get confusing at points, like who was beating up who, who was the one who was restarting things. Was it Mark? Was it Joe? Was it Loki? You know, there was a point where, like, everything's going crazy, and then, like, you see Homicide get up, and, like, he's, like, kind of getting calmed down. I'm like, I thought Homicide had gone to the back, like, five minutes earlier. Like, it's just, it's very confusing, which I guess is maybe part of the vibe. I just didn't like the work shoot stuff, and I didn't under, I don't know, there just wasn't enough of, like why was this happening now? You know what I mean? Like, what caused this? And you said this this wasn't meant to write out the Briscoes, right? Like, this was this was well, just I an mean, angle that was supposed to go forward. I, I know they were booked for at least, like, the next show, and they had to cancel because of Mark. And clearly, I don't think this is how you'd write them out, because if anything, it's setting up, like, a Briscoes key match, you know, like a Jay Briscoe key match that we never, at least in this era, we don't get. And... Even I guess that's another one. If you want to look for problems on this, like we got Joe screaming to low key, you know, I'll see you in September, all this stuff. Like it's building a lot of, I mean, the Joe Rottweiler's feud in total continues in some ways, maybe, I guess, but like, or I don't even know how much more that longer that goes on. Like it really, it's, it's building a lot of things that don't happen, which with the Briscoe's thing, maybe that's against their, out of their hands, you know, cause Mark gets hurt and they decide to take a break from wrestling. But yeah, I, I like the spectacle of it. I thought it came off as more entertaining and real than than some of them or most of them. But yeah, the whole thing, it's like it, it kicks off with a thing that you can't buy. Like we're supposed to believe like we're so I guess in the realm of this, we're supposed to believe that low key after legit losing a pro like after losing a pro wrestling match that he uh, you would assume agreed to lose got so angry because he hardly ever loses that he decided to really kick his opponent in the head for real. Like it's just whatever Loki's reputation was, it wasn't that, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I just, that, that part didn't work for me. It's just, it just, it never is going to, but it definitely didn't here. And, and, um, but I do think one thing they did better, which was, and one thing that I do think separated it from the other riots was, they didn't have, at least on camera, from what I could see, like Gabe and, and and anyone else out there screaming, like you know, everybody's like they had they let the wrestlers do it, but it wasn't like the first rider stuff where you have like Gabe and Rob come out and be like, you know, this is a shoot, everybody stop, like. <laughs> I, I, I think that was a, a step that made it better. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Yeah, so I enjoyed it, but yeah, th- that initial part is not great. And one thing I did like, I have to point out, uh, De- I loved DeVito trying to restrain Smokes while simultaneously, like, clearly getting a huge kick out of everything Julius Smokes was saying. Like, he's barely holding back a smile while also, like, oh, I'm going to hold this guy back because this is a scary riot, but he's clearly just like enjoying getting a front row seat to the Julius Smoke show. But you know what? It, I, I actually buy that in real life, DeVito would have that reaction, even if there was a scary ride going on, to somebody freaking out the way Julius Smokes was. And, and I, I didn't time this, but this, Matt, maybe I'm wrong, but this felt like it went on for a long time, too. Like on a show that really needed to be tightly edited. And again, I'm not necessarily, this isn't even a complaint. It's just interesting. They spent a lot of time like on this riot. But, but... 
but talking about improvements. Do you remember on the first anniversary show that they showed the entire thing like three times from different angles? <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, we we only get it once here. This would have had to have been like maybe a triple DVD set if they showed this two additional times because it did feel long. But. I mean, that was absurd even like when we first reviewed it, right? Like, why are they showing this whole thing again? Yeah. But hey, they really liked it, I guess. <laughs> You could tell on that one, they were just so proud of like, look what we did. This is a special thing. And like, they were just so excited. And here, I do think they're they're a bit more reserved in how they do it to their, to their benefit. I, I think they're a bit more, again, like I mentioned, not having like Gabe come out and scream, you know, oh, this is a shoot and stuff like that. They've learned some lessons. Just no, no, no shrieking, every, no shrieking yeah. during this. Yeah, they just haven't learned every lesson, but they, they, they've learned some with this riot. And again, it's just unfortunate that it doesn't really produce anything that I can remember. But um, after intermission, there's another thing that didn't make DVD, but likely we wouldn't have made – this wouldn't have made DVD even if they weren't pressed for time. But from the Mike Johnson Live report, in the first match after intermission, the Rockin' Rebel pinned Cloudy from Special K in a minute 41. The Embassy faction attacked Special K, which led to Dunn and Marcos making the save to we're not going to t- we're not going to take it. So yeah, this was one of those things where at this time, after Rob had left, Ring of Honor did not have their own Pennsylvania promoter's license, but Rockin' Rebel did. So you'll see a bunch of shows where Rockin' Rebel gets a very short match that does not make tape, because I guess that was one of his stipulations for letting someone use his promoter's license. So congratulations on getting a one minute, 41 second untelevised win over cloudy. But, and that brings us to our next match. The first after intermission ring of honor tag team title match, the Havana pit bulls of Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero defeated the second city saints of CM Punk and Colt Cabana in 19 minutes, nine seconds when Romero pinned Cabana with a small package, this was a title change. This was the Havana Pitbulls getting the tag belts. Um, before the match, Punk comes out alone to his usual AFI theme. He seems kind of confused that he's coming out alone. He looks, peeks behind the curtain to look for Cabana. He just eventually gives up and looks, makes his way to ringside by himself. Ace Steel then comes out and he grabs a mic and he tells Punk to due to recent events. And for those who don't know, during this week, uh, Rick James had passed away. He says they felt like it was inappropriate for Colt to come out to AFI or Copacabana. And instead, Colt comes out to Super Freak, which gets a big reaction. Colt does the hammer dance. Fans love it. Punk does his usual kind of grumpy face sell, straight man sell. He, 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 go, he goes, I think I need a new partner. <laughs> I didn't know that, that. That's very cool. Uh, Julius smokes, dances in Colt's face. Everyone's having a good time. And then we get the match. So um, one of the things on this rewatch run, Matt, that I was hoping would change was I remember when the first time I watched these shows at the time, I was pretty disappointed by the Havana Pitbulls because I had heard so much buzz from certain like really hardcore, harder core than me fans that were watching tapes of, you know, like New Japan and CML where these guys were in and stuff that like, you know, these guys are awesome. These are one of the best tag acts. Even that straight shooting interview with Samoa Joe I mentioned, Joe, who recorded this interview, you know, on this day, said like that he thought this was one of the best tag acts in the world and he was so excited to see them in Ring of Honor. And so I was really hyped up and I felt like a lot of their tag matches at the time, I remember feeling like just kind of missed for me. I felt like, well, maybe this is one of those things that will change on rewatch. And so far it hasn't. And this is another match where it's not bad. Um, 
I believe some people, some kids use the term, uh, why do I keep saying kids this episode? I'm, I'm 35, I'm not 65. But anyway, some some people use the phrase, I, I believe Joe Lanza of Voices of Wrestling came up with this, the line, the gentleman's three for an, a match where it's technically fairly good and you kind of acknowledge that it's good to some degree. But That, that, that kid Joe Lanza. <laughs> yeah, that, that kid pushing 40 or, you know, Joe Lanza. But like, you know, the gentleman's three, the idea of, well, I recognize it's good to a certain degree, but I'm, it's not really moving me personally. And I would, I think this match for me would be a gentleman's three where I was never bored at any point during this match. Like most cult and punk tags of this era, it follows like a very rock salad, uh, traditional tag formula where someone in this case, punk gets to be the face in peril. They make the hot tag. You get the final end stretch where everyone's in and out. Um, and I, I uh, everything makes sense, but everyone in the moment, their work is good, except I, um, there's a moment from punk who does maybe the worst looking surfboard I have ever seen in pro wrestling history, which leads to a phony moment later where, um, punk, the, um, cabana gets one of the guys down and punk, you can hear screams to him. You show me how to do it. And so Colt tries to fumble at a surfboard and acts like he can't do it. So then he literally just stands on the guy and surfs like he's an actual surfboard. Which yeah, like holds it holds out his arms to the side. Yeah, like like yeah. And 10. yeah. And uh, I thought that was fun. But I feel like watching the Havana Pitbulls, people talk about wrestling like the notes between the music, you know, the things you do between the moves. And I don't see a ton of it from the Havana Pitbulls at this point. And while the notes they're doing, aka the moves are in, are good, they come out a bit robotic. Like they're just they kind of feel like wrestling machines to me at this point. Of just here's a kick, hard kick, but not like Austin Aries. Yeah, like <laughs> here's a hard kick, here's a hard, here's a move, here's a you know whatever, and and then your turn. Like I don't know, I kind of feel like them like. Some people at some stages of Chris Candido's career, some people said he was a little robotic, you know, or Christopher Daniels. Like, I kind of feel that way about the Havana Pitbulls and some of these early Ring of Honor tag matches where their execution is really good. They're not really doing anything wrong. I just it, – it's just not connecting with me for some reason. And um, it's weird. Like, I would say I actually like so far – their singles matches in Ring of Honor are better than their tags. Like I prefer the Romero Collier match and the Ricky Reyes Samoa Joe matches to any tags they've had so far, and they've gotten lengthy opportunities with the with the Briscoes match, with this match, and with the six man tag, which was a lot of them in the Briscoes with Joe and Homicide too. Like they've gotten plenty of time with really top end opponents in Ring of Honor, and I can't come away. I haven't come away one time yet, even on the rewatch, going. Like, wow, that was even like a four-star great match. And that's disappointing to me. But, I, I mean, I can go into more details on some things, but I think I should throw it over to you right now. Like, again, uh, this is one of those things where I feel like I don't know if I'm out on a limb or not with this. Like, what would am I being too hard on this? Well, I don't think you're being too hard on the match. I actually would go lower than a three-star for this one. Maybe two and three-quarter, like, which is, you know, kind of petty, I guess. But I don't think it would get the gentleman three. I didn't think the match clicked. I didn't think it was just the Pitbulls. And I have liked past Pitbulls matches more than you. I know I liked the Briscoes match more than you did. Um, but this match didn't have a lot of heat. It just never really felt like it gelled. There was a little bit of like sloppiness, messiness to it. I didn't think it was Punk's best night. I thought Cabana looked pretty good. But I, I by the way, what, did Cabana have like an, an eye injury because he was wearing those goggles? I couldn't tell if he was just doing that to be silly or if he actually had an injury. But um, he was wearing at least for part of the match. Um, 
But no, I just thought the match didn't really click right. I think what you say about the pit bulls makes some sense, and I didn't really think about it, that they're just a little bit robotic, and that I definitely do agree that their singles matches that we've reviewed so far have been more enjoyable than most of these tag team matches. Um, I thought there was some weird stuff. Like, for one thing... Um, I thought it was weird that, like, after all we just saw, they cut away right after it. Because remember, this was after intermission. And so, like, there was time in between. But for us, there was no time in between. So we went from Julius Smokes being involved in this insane brawl to just casually, like, dancing out with the Havana Pitbulls. And they. Expl- it, it, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I just wanted to interject because there's a moment in Gabe's commentary where he tries to explain that. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, you no. should go on where he's, he's just saying, like, Smokes is there to keep the peace like i guess yeah it it was like to appease them is what he said like 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 he he kicked out homicide and low-key but he's like all right all right we'll let julia smoke stay that that's sort of what the idea was yeah you can keep your manager yeah that's all i was gonna say but even though that's what he meant there's just something funny about any time like the idea of Julia Smokes is here to keep things settled down. That just like the idea of that made me laugh. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, Gabe also mentions that it took smelling salts to revive Jay Briscoe, which is like, wow, he he was really, really hurt by that little kick. No, I don't know. It looked like a really brutal kick. Actually, I'm not making fun of that. Um, but did you notice that Gabe was very careful not to call the rot, the uh, Romero and Reyes the Havana Pitbulls? Like he just calls them the Rottweilers. And like even well, a couple of times he starts by saying the huh, Rottweilers. Like did you did you notice that? I didn't actually. That's interesting. It's funny because when I was listening to that straight shooting interview with Samoa Joe, he keeps just calling them the Cubans, which I thought was funny. That is interesting too. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess maybe there was an edict like don't call them the Havana Pitbulls. I mean, no, it, which no, feels very which feels very Vince McMahon to me. But I guess that must have been what was going on. Obama had not opened had not been around as president yet to open the borders, so yeah, very strict. Can't mention the Havana Pitbulls. Well, they did call them that before they joined the Rottweilers, but yes, um, I think they just wanted to get over the Rottweilers' name. Um, yeah. Another funny thing you didn't mention about Punk's terrible surfboard, where his foot slips out, is that Gabe says "nicely done" for a <laughs> for a second before the foot slips out. He's like "nicely done." Oops, <laughs> like. Like, like, literally, if you just waited like a quarter of a second, he would have avoided that embarrassing moment. Um, but I did enjoy that very much. Um, but no, I, the match, I thought it just was weird. It felt like part of it felt intense and part of it felt like they were messing around. Do you know what I mean? Like, like Cabana was being silly, but then there was also this intensity. So the tone felt off. Like, um, like I don't know. And then, like... But then Reyes would do these really hard kicks, so it, that part didn't seem like messing around, and it never really got that exciting. Um, Reyes spit at Cabana, and uh, Gabe said, "Colt Cabana isn't thinking about Rick James now," and I was just like, "What? What? What if he still is? You know, even when getting spit at?" Um, <laughs> And Gabe actually criticizes Colt for the entrance. He's like, when you're with two guys like this, you got to be serious. And I guess, you know, that was setting up the ti- the title change. Um, I don't know. I just thought the match had no flow. Uh, eventually, Punk uh, hit the Pepsi twist um, on Reyes, but then Rocky came in and did that armbar Rana thing that he does. And Punk actually powered out, which you don't usually see Punk get to do, and powerbomb him down. Um I, you know, there, But, you know, there was some good stuff. Reyes pulling Colt down, so Punk ha- tag him. Um, 
and then once they get the hot tag, it's lit. I actually enjoyed Colt's hot tag very much because it's super like, and then uh, Gabe even mentions Jimmy Valiant. He literally just stands in one spot punching the Rottweilers. That's his entire hot tag. There's one moment where he's waiting on Rocky Romero, I think, to stand up again because he's like, I'm not moving. I'm just waiting for you to get up and take another punch. Like, he's not, his plan is just to stand there. You guys keep coming up. I'm going to keep punching you. Yeah, I agree. And then they do this they, they 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 do this thing after the hot tag where they keep like putting on these holds right in front of the other partner. Like like Saints like they like they do their uh, Boston Crab camel clutch thing on Ricky Reyes, but Romero is just standing right there. So of course he breaks it up and gets punk in an arm in an arm bar and then Cabana just breaks that up cuz he's standing right there still. And like that, I don't know, that seemed a little bit not the best not the smartest way to lay out a match. Um so then Rocky got the armbar on Punk, and Colt broke it up with the frog splash. Um, but he sort of hits the ref, so it's like a mini ref bump. Um, so like basically, it means that Sinclair isn't out, but he'll have to come from far away to do the counts. Um, and so the guys keep kicking out, like which I don't know. I guess it's novel. It's like a half ref bump. Um, and then eventually... Um, you know, Romero goes for the small package. Punk grabs Colt's arm to block it, which I enjoyed. But then Reyes knocked Punk's arm away, and that allowed the small package and the pinfall. So I, I, I did like the finish, but I didn't really like the match. Um, I guess the idea was that Cabana wasn't serious enough, and that's why the uh, Pitbulls won. But I don't really think that fits the Pitbulls gimmick, right? That they weren't taken seriously. I thought the idea was that everyone took them seriously and were scared of them. So I don't know what they were really going for. But it was really not the most noteworthy way to change a tag team title. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, although I do disagree on the finish, because actually I really didn't like the finish. Just for this reason, I, I like that you know, punk holding on to keep, to keep, uh, Colt get from getting rolled up in a small package. But what I don't like is then when, when his arm gets kicked away and Colt does get small package and that is the finish. I didn't like that for a couple reasons. One, because I feel like small packages usually work as finishes for one of two reasons, either like it's way sudden. So it happens in like a flash and the guy wasn't expecting it. Or you're facing a guy like Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson was, this is when he had that gimmick where he had, where he creates a gimmick of like, I have an unbreakable small package. And this was a situation where Colt had to know he was potentially getting small packaged for like a good five seconds or more. And when it finally does happen, I, I don't think he had gotten much, taken that much damage in this match because Colt, I mean, Punk spent most of this match as the face in peril and he still loses to the small package, which I felt was kind of like, that's kind of not the, in my mind, it was like, that wasn't the time for him to lose to the small package. Going to what you said though. Yeah, it does. It's almost like he is not taking it seriously, but again, I don't know if that's an, an was their intended storyline. And that was another weird thing where, you know, Colt's always the wacky guy in a lot of ways, but like in the Samoa Joe match, I felt like he did a good job of still coming off as a serious guy for the most part with a little bit of humor. And in this match, he's wrestling with those goggles, almost the whole or glasses, whatever they are, almost the whole match. And like you mentioned, Gabe's criticizing him for not taking anything seriously. Like it, it is kind of a weird look where one half of the tag team champions is still wrestling like 60% comedy here, you know, Although he does do some serious stuff. He breaks out his a cool kind of spinning sidewalk slam I liked. He does his invert, inver, inverted vertical suplex, which I like. Um, he acts, he chops the ring post where a guy gets out of the way and hits it really hard, which I thought 
was cool from him. Um, I also didn't like that Gabe used his sad, like there's been a wrestler death voice when talking about the riot. Again, I felt like the more you try and push it as real, the more fake it seems. Like if you had just let it kind of speak for itself, that's better than like, Oh, you know, Oh, that riot is just, uh, don't, we, we got to move on. Like just that hush tone. It, it, it's just, you can't lay it on too thick when you're trying making something real. Um, and the only other note I have here is a uh, punk punk mocks Julius smokes his hat, which leads to a, that hat sucks chant. So punk actually got the crowd to chant against Julius smokes, which I think is a rare feat in wrestling. That's right. Um, Punk's face turn is obviously going well. <laughs> After the match, Romero put Colt's glasses on smokes, which was funny. I thought, and then we cut to backstage where Sugar Sean Price is there. He's talking to Moff and Whitmer. And I think that we forgot I forgot to mention this, but Alice and Danger did interfere during the Moff and Whitmer Carnage Crew match. Uh, I I, men- I mentioned it. Oh, oh yeah, you yeah, did, yeah. She pulled she pulled Moff down, crotched him. Oh yeah, yeah. Exa- yeah, you did. Thank God. Um <laughs> Uh, thank thank heavens we didn't miss that one. <laughs> yeah, it's fairly important, but it gives context to uh, this promo. Uh, Sean says that Moff and Whitmer have serious woman problems with Allison Danger. Uh, Moff tells Allison to let it go. They're leaving her with nothing personal. Moff says they're giving her one last chance. Moff is using his quiet voice here, which I wrote is one of his two voices. <laughs> and then he refers to her as Kathy and he goes, and I say Kathy. And he says he's not a – He's shooting. He's shooting just so you know. Yeah, exactly. And coming off right after the Gabe stuff, it was just a little too much we're being real here stuff. And so he says, I'm not invo- above doing something really stupid if you keep involving ourselves in, in these matches. So. I'm not I'm not above doing something really stupid. You don't say, Dan Moff. <laughs> And like it's it's also funny like he's acting like like it's the most like don't make you pu- don't push me I'll I'll hurt a woman like that was the opening of the first Ring of Honor show like <laughs> yeah that's right he, yes that's exactly right he hurt her yeah like it's clearly not like you don't have to be pushed to the absolute moral limit to do this like you you will do it for shits and giggles like it, it, it's it's you will do it for pure homophobia yeah exactly so, but. You know, they're continuing this Alice in Danger, Moth and Whitmer feud. Um, and that brings us to something that's a little weird next. Wait, wait, wait. Before you get to that, you I loved Price's sign-off of that segment. He says, and I quote, Once again, this is Sugar Sean Price telling you to stay out of their way, and I'll see you guys later. <laughs> I, like, cracked up. Like, just like... Like telling you to stay out of the way of Moff and Whitmer, like is like like it almost sounded like that was his catchphrase. Like this is Sugar Song Price telling you to stay out of their way. Like I could actually see him ending every segment like that. If I hadn't, from being so awkward, inadvertently come up with "Have a good time, have a great time," which you now make me do at the end of every episode, I make you. I think "Stay out of Moff and Whitmer's way" would be my <laughs> new sign of just inexplicably, even like when we're covering like 2006 Ring of Honor, just like. Yeah, stay out of Moth and Whitmer's way. But also just the way he said it. This is Sugar Sean Price telling you, instead of like telling you to have a good time, have a great time, it was like telling you to stay out of their way, and I'll see you guys later. Like, that's how he said it. <laughs> it's like the same cadence as like, only you can prevent forest fires. That's like, right. Oh, uh, that, that was good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you made sure I didn't just skip over that. Um, so next week, we did and we didn't kind of get a Ring of Honor world title match. This was Samoa Joe defeats Trent Acid via pinfall in eight minutes, four seconds after hitting the Island Driver. I guess that's what the live crowd saw. But 
on the home release, all we see is a very quick edited clip uh, segment of clips. We see, uh, because apparently Trent Acid got hurt during this match. We see Trent Acid do a hurricanrana, and he lands and appear. We're told by a voiceover by Gabe that's not trying to act like it's live that um, that Trent hurt himself on this hurricanrana, and the match didn't turn out to be what it could have been. And for the they say it is for the interest of time, but also because the match wasn't you know what what it should have been. We're just we're not going to show most of it. We do see Joe win with the Island Driver, and we see. Um, Trent clutching his ankle after the match and and really in, seeming to be in pain um, from the Pro Wrestling Torch. Uh, some back there's a bunch of background in this match. The Pro Wrestling Torch said that uh, Ring of Honor World Champion Samoa Joe is so banged up that he had to cancel bookings and other promotions over the previous weekend, but that he was still going to do the Trent Acid match. Uh, the Ring of Honor Newswire for July 27th said Joe had suffered a strained knee ligament, a sprained ankle a black eye and a bruised tailbone from his two matches on death before dishonor weekend. And they were trying to sell that as Trent acid might not be the underdog. Everyone thinks on August 7th, which ironically Trent acid is then the guy who gets really hurt in this match. Uh, the torch would later write that Trent acid was taken to the hospital for real. After this match, he suffered a sprained ankle and a bruised heel bone. Although I read somewhere else that apparently at the time, Trent acid thought he had actually just broken his ankle. And, uh, yeah, it, it, Matt, I think we talked on a recent a recent show about the kind of one of the tragedies of obviously there's an obvious tragedy with Trent Acid dying of a heroin overdose or a drug overdose before his time, but one of the other minor, more minor tragedies of Trent Acid was when he started to get a singles run of Ring of Honor in 2004, it felt like his performances in Ring of Honor for whatever reason had fallen off a cliff, and this just is a another kind of sad part where he gets one of his highest profile matches in the company and he gets hurt. And I think in, in commentary, Gabe even says something like, well, he Gabe basically acts like they're going to book this again down the line so they can really get a chance to show what they can do. And Trent doesn't get that. He's out of the company by the, I think the end of the year, I think is, is, is the end for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a bummer. I don't really have much to say obviously about the match cause we didn't see it, but I, um, yeah, I definitely feel bad for Trent Acid. Um, his performances were definitely already going downhill, in my opinion. Um, but I still would have liked to see what he could have done against Joe. You know, I mean, given the opportunity, maybe he would have risen to the occasion. It sucks. Yeah, and I did think there was – I don't know if you noticed this, but there was one thing in Gabe's um, commentary. It was it felt a little pointed to me. Even, even though overall, I want to say, Gabe was not – didn't come off – overall as Gabe bearing Trent because he was saying, you know, we should book these guys again. So because we think, you know, they can do a good job and all that stuff. But he did say, I thought this was kind of pointed. Gabe says during the voiceover, the lesson here is to tape up your ankle and wear wrestling gear, which I thought was him kind of saying like, Trent, you should have like, you should have taken better care of yourself. It was kind of putting it on Trent, which, you know, maybe, Maybe that there's some merit to that, but I did think you usually don't hear that in these kind of things where he literally just says the lesson here is to tape up your ankle and wear wrestling gear. But uh, that, that, that brings us to the main event, which is best two out of three falls match. Austin Aries defeated Brian Danielson two falls to one in 76 minutes, 10 seconds. Now, one thing I'm going to bring up first is um, – Trying to find the match times, I don't usually time these matches myself. I try and look up results. Sometimes the results disagree with each other. 
Um, this was one of those times where some people timed it out to 74 minutes and change. Some timed it out to 76.10. I think that probably depends on whether you include the intermission where there was supposed to be like a 30 second or so intermission between falls. So I believe probably that has a lot to do with maybe the difference some people had. I'm for the purposes of this just going to refer to it as 76.10. Some other people online might say 74 just to let you know if you – ever read about this match or time out and go why did they say that that's just what i'm going with here um aries made danielson submit to the cattle mutilation in 4208 for the first fall brian danielson pinned aries in 63 16 with a pinning combination at, right after a cattle mutilation for the set to tie it at one fall apiece and then austin aries pinned brian danielson in 76 10 after he hit the 450 to win the match two falls to one Matt, there's a lot to talk, a ton to talk about here, obviously, but you, uh, thank God you thought of this because even though I'm supposedly Mr. Research Guy, this completely slipped my mind and luckily it did not slip your mind, but the man himself, Brian Danielson, has written about this match and I believe you have the quote. Yeah, so this is um, Brian Danielson's autobiography known as, Yes, My Improbable Journey to the Main Event of WrestleMania. Um, and uh, it is on page 115 of the original printing, um, hardcover. Um, so he says, In between tours, I continued to wrestle on independent shows, mostly for Ring of Honor. So he was talking about tours of uh, Japan at that time. Um, Earlier in the year, I won an ROH tournament called Survival of the Fittest, which came down to me and Austin Aries, who just started with ROH a couple of months earlier. Gabe Sapolsky, the booker, loved the finals and subsequently booked Aries and me in a two out of three falls match that August at Testing the Limit. I was talking to Gabe on the way to the airport when he told me he'd advertised that each fall had a one hour time limit. I thought that was weird, especially since there was no plan for any of the falls to go an hour. It was just going to be like any other two out of three falls match. But then I started thinking. I envisioned leveraging the significant time limit. We could go to an hour draw in each of the first two falls. Then, just when it looked like we were going to go, excuse me, going to a third hour long draw, somewhere around 55 minutes in, Aries would beat me. I called Gabe back and told him my idea. At first he thought I was joking and laughed. But the more I talked to him, the more I realized, the more he realized I was serious. Given the business model of ROH, the most important thing was selling DVDs and tapes. If we did what I had planned, it would be the longest pro wrestling match in modern history, and my justification was that a ton of ROH fans, as well as non-ROH fans, would buy it, even if they fast-forwarded through most of it. Gabe started to come around, and he eventually said I could do it if I wanted to. By just my my interjection here, I love that that Booker I, uh, like comment. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you want, <laughs> whatever. Um, <laughs> when I landed in Philadelphia, I ran the plan past Aries. Gabe had spoken with him earlier, and at first Aries thought he was ribbing him. After he realized it wasn't a joke, it didn't take long for Aries to agree to the concept. My only concern was the live fans and keeping them engaged. Nothing kills a match quite like a crowd's bored, but I came up with what I thought was a brilliant idea. Since we were on last, we would have the ring announcer tell the fans that it could end up being a long match and that neither performer would be offended if an audience member decided to head home. That's right. (laughs) 
My brilliant idea was to encourage people to leave in the middle of my match. I thought it would be easier to wrestle the three hours if we didn't have to worry about entertaining people live. And I knew the commentary would make it easier for people to watch at home. Unfortunately, people weren't leaving, but they were getting bored, so we improvised and went to our backup plan, exchanging a few falls in what became a 76-minute bout. It is still the longest match of my career, though I've always been disappointed we didn't go the full three hours. I think this tells me that there should be a WWE pay-per-view during this pandemic that should just be Daniel Bryan wrestling a three-hour match against somebody, since there are no fans that they have to entertain. But I thought that was very interesting, not only that they had that idea, but that he thought of it on the way to the airport, and that Aries agreed of it that day, and they changed their mind in the middle of the match. And Gabe's response was, yeah, whatever. I actually, I'm, I'm going to, uh, there's some stuff from people's, like, their th- opinions on this match. I'm going to save till after our opinions, but I think there's some background on this match that I'm going to put now, because I think it actually dovetails really nice with your stuff, because r- listening to you read that, I, the thing I found fascinating about that was, so th- the story about Danielson wanting it to be two hour-long draws for the first two falls, and then a third fall going about 45 minutes, that all filtered out in the newsletters and like the Observer, the Torch, PW Insider, basically the, immediately, the week after people were saying this was the story. But the thing I thought was interesting that I learned from you reading that was when I read this, uh, let's see if you think, I think it sounds like the, the, P, the newsletter writers were making it sound like all this was just an idea that came up the day of the show where the way you, from what you read, it sounds like this was something that Danielson was fighting for you know, before, like, more than the day before, more than the day of the show. Hmm, it's hard. I, I, I didn't get that. I got that he said it was on the way to the airport, so I guess it depends on oh. when, it depends on when he was going to Philadelphia, if it was that day or if it was, like, the day before. But he said he, he had the idea on the way to the airport when he was talking to Gabe. Oh, okay. Because think of how I'm saying that is, especially when you think of, from Austin Aries' point of view, like, imagine what, what it would feel like to be any wrestler and say, Hey, I have an idea. How about we wrestle for almost three hours? Like, well, well, also, just like imagine you, you're going to work and they're like, hey, just what do you think would be fun if we just did like three times the length of our workday? Yeah, I mean, and also, but like even three times the workday, like depending on what your job is, you might know in the back of your head, this will be a killer, but I can do this. I think a lot of wrestlers, I have to imagine, if someone said you have to wrestle two hours, 45 minutes, I think a lot of them would probably say, I don't even know if I can do that. Right. Like, hey, like, right. Do you do you want do you want to wrestle the longest match ever? How, how does that sound? Yeah, like I, I think there's a lot of wrestlers that probably think I'm not sure if I could go 60 minutes, you know. And Danielson's here saying, "Hey, do you want to work two hours and 45 minutes with me? Like, with hours to go to plan?" And it's just that, that's like a staggering thing. Like, just you know, the chutzpah, as they might say. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's it's almost like. I would. Lo- I mean, I don't know if Aries has ever spoken about like what he thought about that, but it's like, like that's such a Brian Danielson thing to do. But then to like assume that somebody else is game for it, you know what I mean? Like, I guess Aries agreed because he was like a young up and comer. But like, boy, it takes a special talent to work the longest match ever. <laughs> and I guess like the idea was, okay, this is going to be boring, just so you know, but it'll sell DVDs. <laughs> I mean, that that is kind of what it sounded like his idea was. Like, I know this match is going to be boring, but it will sell DVDs. That's basically what he said. People will fast forward through most of it. That's what he said. And Brian Danielson is such a fascinating guy because you think of 
like he's such a weird mix of self-deprecation and he's a very modest guy in a lot of ways, but he also does have extreme confidence in himself in other ways. Like you hear these stories of like Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit, where they would criticize their own great matches right afterwards. And they'd be really hard on themselves or they would never think they were very good. But like Danielson has some stuff where he is hard on himself in some ways. He's like, oh, I'm not close to the greatest wrestler and all this. And this guy's way better. And this guy's way better. But then he also has this – you do have to have a certain kind of insane confidence to go, yeah, I can do two hours and 45 minutes. Like I don't – like I definitely can do that and I can pull it off. Like Again, it's not – it's not, it's and again, it's not just like a regular kind of confidence that he could do a long match. No one else had done this. Right, no one. I mean, I guess you. I know, like George Hackenschmidt against Frank Gotch, whatever. But like, so that was a totally different thing. You know what I mean? Like, totally different time, totally different place, totally different art form. Um, this is a whole like no one had ever done what Brian Danielson was proposing to be done right here. The thing that came closest was the year before. Um, CM Punk and um, uh, Chris Hero had done a ninety-three minute. To a, I believe it was a two or three falls match in IWA Mid South. What brought and that was considered like a huge calling card match and a huge even from a small portion like IW Mid South. That was one of the first times I really heard about those guys because I wasn't really following Ring of Honor regularly yet. This was early in uh, his ROH run when he did this for IWA Mid South. So again, reminder: De- uh, Brian Danielson wanted to do a match. That was over an hour and 10 minutes longer than that. Right. And by the way, that match holds up pretty well, in my opinion, and it is available on YouTube for free. The CM Punk versus Chris Hero 2 out of 3 Falls 90-minute match. So uh, I recommend that one, for the record. Part of me wonders if that played into Danielson's thinking, because I think Danielson's, he's always like a big ideas guy, and I think he always likes new things and new challenges. So I wonder if part of him in the back of his head was like, if they can do 93 minutes, well, I can do another hour. Well, it also made it sound like he's like, hey, you gave those hour-long time limits. I might as well like use that to do something different. You know, that was part of it too. Um, but also, long matches were all the rage at this time, right? You already had the – I mean, if you look, pretty much every ROH show since Generation Next – since that we've reviewed has had a really, really long match, right? Like yeah. um, the Generation Next tag team match was like 40-something minutes almost or close to it. The Survival of the Fittest main event was around 40-ish minutes. Uh, the um, the main event of uh, a world title classic, obviously, was an hour. Um, the main event of Reborn um, – Completion was at least late, tw- like high twenties, right? Like or thirty something. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Briscoes versus Punk and Cabana two out of three falls match was really long, and the Punk and Steel versus uh, Moff and Whitmer street fight was really long. So it's like really long matches were like the thing to have at this point in two thousand and four. And I think this this match and the the Punk Joe hour long draws, I think kind of set off a trend of longer matches in the indies period like i think other promotions tried to emulate this in part because i think these matches got a lot of attention i think you can credit punk with a lot of it because he did a really long match against hero in 2002 a ladder match and then he did that 90 minute match with um with hero i think he might have done some 60 minute matches even with cabana if i remember correctly he said in some interview once that he did i don't know if those are on tape anywhere or anything they're certainly not remembered like the others but he claims he's you know that he had done 60 minutes multiple times before joe with multiple people 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think he's one of the guys who popularized it. Even Joe and uh, Danielson have a, like a super long match uh, in a couple months in ROH. Um, so those long matches are not going away anytime soon. I think they settled down a bit in 2005, but 2004, that's like the thing to do. In fact, I think there's a story. I don't. I forget if they did this or not. I think they did, but I remember like there's there's a shoot interview. It's a pretty entertaining shoot interview. Uh, I think it's an ROH one where it's AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels together going over their entire career of matches just between the two of them and their friendship. And I think PWG in this era was like once like, all right, we booked you guys against each other. We want you to go do a sixty minute draw or something. And they're like, what? Like like they like they did not want to do it. But I, I think there was a vibe around this era where after some of these matches where it was just like having a match that was 60 minutes or more was the thing to have for a little while. And maybe Definitely. not always in a positive way. And again, I think largely, like you said, Punk and maybe a little bit this match too were the influence of a lot of that. But going to what other people wrote about the Danielson story before we get into the review, um, the Observer wrote, they teased a long match when they announced that all three falls would individually have a 60-minute time limit as opposed to being the time the time limit for the match as, as a whole. Match was said to be between three th- – was b- to have been three and three-quarter stars to four stars. Crowd gave them a standing ovation and chanted three more falls at them. Aries kept up with Danielson and went over at the end. They did a limited amount of high spots, but the crowd wasn't as behind Aries at the level they were Paul London when he wrestled Danielson in one of Ring of Honor's best matches last year. Danielson now books all of his matches in Ring of Honor since he's not around as a regular and can only work between New Japan tours. His idea, which is why they announced those rules was to actually do a 170-minute match with two straight 60-minute draws, and then Aries would finally pin him for the third and only fall at the 50-minute mark, when in the ring, Danielson called an audible, thinking the match wasn't working the way he liked. There were periods where the crowd wasn't qu- where the crowd wasn't quiet, but worse, that you could hear the murmur of people carrying on conversations with each other, which meant they weren't enraptured by the match. Gabe Sapolsky felt afterwards that to do a 170-minute match, you would have to have a crowd by invitation only with about your most hardcore 80 fans or so. So there's a lot to talk about there first, Matt. First off, I don't think that idea would work pretty well. Like, it would just be weird to say, we're going to tell you in advance this match is going to be really long. Like... Well, I guess, I guess they do. I guess they do that. Like they have Iron Man matches and stuff. What if they had a 180 minute Iron Man match? Yeah, and I wonder how many tickets that would sell. I mean, I would be interested, even as a curiosity. Like I don't know if, but it is interesting, and it is interesting, kind of going to what you said earlier, the way you talked about, like Gabe was willing to do something he didn't fully believe they could pull off. You know, you know, because you have Gabe in this comment telling the observer this was like the week after the show. I think the only way you could do a 170 minute match was, you know, by invitation only with well, the hardest uh, of the hardcores. And Danielson yeah. even and Danielson even admitted his Gabe's reaction was was fairly ambivalent. It sounded like when he had the idea, he was like, I mean, I guess he had faith in Brian Danielson, but he was like, yeah. if you want to do it, go ahead, whatever. Like that really does sound like what it is. I mean, that shows you the faith he had in him because. How many other guys would he have done that before where it sounds like, you know, he did not believe he could really do this, but in a way, at least part of him must have been like, well, maybe you can, or maybe I just want to make you happy. Which is, which is, which is honestly how I would have reacted to like, uh, he probably can't do this, but like, Hey, you know what? It's Brian Danielson. Maybe he can. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, and I have to think that's a a a. Uh, he, uh, this this is a pass he gave Danielson. I can't imagine there's many, if maybe anyone else in that company, Gabe would have done that for. Like, I don't know. If, if Alex Shelley, no offense to Alex Shelley, who I like a fair bit, but if Alex Shelley said, hey, Gabe, how about we try doing a main event? I'm in like 170 minutes. Gabe's not saying, sure, go for it. No, you're right. I think pretty much just Danielson. I mean, I guess maybe Joe or Punk, maybe, but yeah. prob- probably just Danielson. Uh, and the other thing I thought was interesting about the, that Observer excerpt was there's that line that says, and I don't know what Dave quite means there, where he says Danielson ba- books his own Ring of Honor matches. Like, I don't know if Gabe, if that's Dave just speaking in Dave ease and it doesn't really mean anything, because even that excerpt you read, it, it sounded like Brian was talking about Gabe booking him in the Aries rematch, like it wasn't his idea. Where if you just read Dave's thing, it kind of sounds like that. Brian is booking, like choosing his own matches, where instead, it, this is more just of Danielson having a lot of influence on how the matches worked. But I don't think it's, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what Gabe, I don't know what Dave is trying to suggest. No, I, I, that sounds more right to me, right? That, not that he books like, what matches he's going to be in, but rather he's like, he lays out the matches pretty much and decides them on his own. That's kind of what it sounds like to me. Yeah, and it's one of those things where I imagine a lot of the top Ring of Honor wrestlers probably had a lot of creative freedom in that respect. Like, I imagine Joe and Punk probably had a similar degree of creative freedom to... I mean, we know they do, because when we covered their first Joe versus Punk match, the 60-minute draw was CM Punk's idea. It wasn't Gabe's idea, and Gabe Gabe then, to his credit, like, listened to it and and agreed to go with it. So, this idea... Again, it kind of... The way Dave writes, it kind of makes it sound like Danielson has this special power where... I think Gabe has a history of listening to guys and if he thinks they have a good idea, like letting them work it, especially if they're a top name that has proven that they have a lot of talent to be able to pull off somewhat audacious ideas. Yeah, and it's a mark of but, a good uh, – that's, that's, that's a mark of a good booker also. Yeah, and the PW Torturer got, actually got a quote from Gabe on this. Uh, Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky tells the torch about Danielson's request – Brian Danielson requested to have time to do a long match, he says. When a talent like Brian Danielson makes that request and a talent like Austin Aries agrees, you give them the stage. Ring of Honor is all about letting the wrestlers perform their art on the best stage possible. So when Danielson and Aries want to do something memorable and special, you don't tell them no. Uh, the Torch writes, only a few fans left during the match, but those who remained gave the wrestlers a standing ovation and chanted match of the year. Hardly an uncommon occurrence at the end of a ring of honor event it's weird it's weird that the people gave him a standing ovation match of the year but that the range that dave Meltzer got in his reports was three and a half to four stars like that's that's i'm not saying that they were like wrong or right or whatever i'll get to my review but it's surprising that like the crowd reacted so dramatically but none of those people wrote into the observer to give a rave review yeah, I have some definite thoughts on that first, but this is definitely going to be probably the longest review we've done for a single match, at least since um, Homicide Carino in uh, the, wire, the the first match they had. Of, bitter but, Friends, bitter friends, Different yeah, Enemies. Which was the Through the Years official best match of 2003, by the way, in case you want a reminder that that match is great. But, it, I mean, it warns it because there's so much to talk about, but I think finally, Matt, we can get to what did you think about the actual match they had? 
Um, I thought this match was. So I'll get the you know get the headline out of the way. I thought the match was absolutely fantastic with flaws. That is how I would describe this match. It was a great match that had some noticeable flaws. Um, so um, you know, it's is it going to be hard for me because I wrote down a lot. It's going to be hard for me not to just like veer into just pure play by play, and I'm going to try to uh, to avoid that. But I'm going to probably do a little bit of that. Um, as I kind of like hit some high points. Um, so for one thing, the beginning of the match, if you, cause I think the, the easiest match to compare this to is the match at the Epic encounter between London and Danielson. Um, and that match I would say was flawless. Would you agree that was sort of a flawless match in terms of how they executed it and how it went? Yeah, I mean, even Dave in that Observer quote I read, they were comparing it. Everyone, I think, was comparing it to that match because it's a 2-0-3 mat, fall match with Danielson. And that match, I think a lot of people or some people consider that the greatest match Ring of Honor had ever done up to that point. Yeah, and it was, I would say, flawless. And at the beginning of that match, it had an incredible atmosphere, like the beginnings of the double chance and that you had mentioned on the review that we did a while, a long time ago. The chanting culture in ROH started with that match. This match did not have anything close to that atmosphere at the beginning. You know, the crowd, it was, they were going slow. The crowd knew it, right? So they were doing the, the slow start, um, which was logical because um, the guys were cautious. It's two out of three falls. It makes sense. Um, Aries won't shake hands at the beginning, which, you know, is smart, what, with the coronavirus and everything. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, but they do, you know, they do the, the mat wrestling and stuff. Um, uh, Danielson even gets on a cattle mutilation for a split second early, and a guy screams about six minutes in. He goes, two hours and 45 and 54 minutes left. So, again, you can really hear individual crowd members on this show. Um, so, you know, they're wrestling, they're, they're working on stuff, and even, you know, it's slow, it's methodical. Punk even mentions that it's uh, a defensive style of wrestling. So, at first, Danielson is targeting Aries' arm. Then it looks like Aries might be targeting the back. Uh, Daniels breaks out, I have till five referee, and he does that multiple times in a row, which is always enjoyable. It feels almost like Daniels Danielson is working like more of a heel than Aries is at certain points in this match. I don't know if that ever felt apparent to you. Oh, definitely. I, yeah. I made a note where it was an interesting choice. Like he was he's jawing with the crowd a couple times. You know, he's he um doesn't he do something that's outright cheating one, at one point? I forget what he does. Yeah, he does I'll, I, I'll see if I have it in my notes, but I, I don't yeah. remember off the top of my head. Um, but, you know, he's doing the I have till five stuff. Um, um, oh, sorry. He, he, um, he grabs the ropes during an abdominal stretch. That's right. That's right. He grabs it during yeah. an abdominal stretch. And Aries, other than the handshake, right, he's sort of the plucky underdog, right? Like, yeah. even though he's a total heel in terms of characterization right now in the company, he's basically the baby face here. Um, so, so like I said, he starts working out um, on the arm, but then he works on the neck. Then he works on the back, and Punk thinks that Danielson is, like, feeling Aries out to find an opening. And, you know, we sort of see that's sort of what he's doing, but I think what he's really doing is just, like, wearing every single part of Aries' body down bit by bit. So, um, which is, an, you know, a strategy we don't see too often. But, you know, in a 70-something minute match, I guess you could do that. Um, Danielson goes up top and Aries hits a top rope Rana and then he hits a drop kick to the face and a kick to the back for two. 
So Aries is starting to take over a little bit. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's getting the his comeback. Aries even blocks a cattle mutilation and puts Danielson in the fish hook, and Danielson rolls out into a cover for two. And now we're getting like twenty minutes in, and the crowd is starting to get the dueling chance going. the The atmosphere is building a little bit. Um, Aries goes for another top rope Rana, but Danielson lifts him out into a fireman's carry and jumps off the top with a gut buster, almost like Roderick Strong style. So that's a pretty big move for like less than 20 minutes in. It's probably the first real big move of the match, but still no clear strategy is emerging. Um, but Danielson is jawing with the referee. Uh, he, he knocks uh, Aries to the floor with a drop kick. You know, he's, he's definitely been the dominant one in the first fall. Um, and, He's doing. They're doing something. What I. What one thing that is similar to the London match is Danielson is really cranking on these holds, making them look really um, brutal. You know, digging his arm into different places and his fist in, and Aries is like struggling hard against it. And you know, he puts on an abdominal stretch, the one that you were talking about, where he grabs the rope. But he's really, really working it. You know, like he's just like cranking and like moving, and like he's not just like sitting in it. so it's like it does seem like they're intentionally trying to get sympathy for Aries, and, and he hip tosses out of that domino stretch, but he gets hit with a clothesline. Um, and the crowd claps for Aries, and this is what you mentioned, right? Danielson goes, stop that clapping. You stop that yep. clapping now, which is, I don't know, pretty funny. So now Danielson has moved to uh, Aries' ribs and his midsection. So he's sort of proving Punk's theory correct. He gets on a seating abdominal, seated abdominal stretch. And Aries tries to escape, but Danielson, by hitting Danielson in the head with his knee, but Danielson just cranks down and digs his elbow into Aries' side. Like, all of that, like, cranking and, like, little, like, maneuvers, that what's, that's what makes Brian Danielson different than other wrestlers. Most guys wouldn't be doing all that stuff. Um, and uh, Daniels, you know, he, he does a crucifix for a pinfall. Aries is finally able to backdrop Danielson to the outside to get a breather. Hits uh, the twisting plancha. And he finally gets control, um, and he puts on what Punk calls a royal octopus hold. Um, I'm so bad with names, I probably wouldn't have known that. I guess partially because American announcers rarely call the moves by their like real names. Um, but uh, Danielson gets out by biting Aries' thigh, which, again, you just do not see that. Um, so I wrote here, they're doing a lot, but the pace is definitely methodical. But they're definitely doing a lot. Um, so eventually, uh, Danielson gets a slingshot suplex, gets a two count. Um, he uh, he does like a cranking hold, and Punk says it's almost a version of Tenzon's Anaconda device. So I guess that's where Punk got the idea to make that his finishing hold. Because he debuts that probably a few months later, right, as his finisher? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Between between this and that Kenta mention Punk made earlier, he's like telegraphing his future. He's like, hmm, that Kenta and that Tenzon, they, uh, they have some pretty cool moves. You know, like, yeah, I know. I'm, but like, you're not – no joke. Like clearly he was into those guys and he took their moves. Yeah. Um, took a little bit longer for him to do the go to sleep. He didn't do the go to sleep until OVW, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I, 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 I'm pretty sure it, it would have been weird if he had done it in Ring of Honor, or maybe not even until ECW. But, um, but Danielson holds down Aries and drives knees into his lower back, and he's really focused on that area now. And I wonder if at this, I was wondering like at this point of if Danielson was still planning on going two and two hours and fifty five minutes. Um, but he goes for another slingshot suplex. He shifts his weight, falls on Danielson for two. Um, 
And I couldn't tell if that was a botch or if that was on purpose. But Danielson got the airplane spin, stopped it, reversed it, and he went for a headbutt, and the crowd chanted, watch your head. And I wrote, yeah, in more ways than one, because we know how dangerous that move is. We just watched a Chris Benoit documentary. We also know that Danielson has had concussion issues. So yeah, dude, watch your head. Um, but Aries rolled out of the way. Both guys are down. Dragon Brock blocked the brain buster and hit a Golden Gate swing, uh, shades of Donovan Morgan. Um, uh, and then Aries uh, hits the moonsault block. Danielson tries to roll through, but Aries rolls it into a pinning combo. Uh, Aries went up top. Daniels caught him. They did a please don't die chant, you know, just as an homage to the London match, I guess. <laughs> and Daniels, Danielson yells, I don't give a fuck if I die or not. Did, did that make your make you like uh, going to Danielson's like you thought about Danielson's head stuff during the watch your head thing when he says I don't give if I fuck if I die or not that's when I kind of thought back to like that's probably the mindset that's gotten him in I'm sure that was part of just alien character but that's I was, I was that kind of took me out of the match for just for a second where I was like that's kind of the mindset that's gotten you into some bad places my friend whatever. I mean, whatever, however true that sentiment was at the time, I don't think he feels that way anymore. No, you know? I mean, he has a wife and a kid. He's talking about maybe yeah. really um, basically almost retiring, maybe wrestling once every, a month or something. So, yeah, clearly he, 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 is, he is not Mr. I don't give a fuck if I die or not. No, definitely not. Um, and I wish him all the best. I hope he stays safe and stays healthy. Um, but uh, – so Danielson goes for the back suplex, but Aries reverses it into a pinfall. Then Danielson rolls into his own pinfall, and Aries kicks out. I really feel like this is the point where the match really starts to get really good. Like, unlike with the London match where the intensity was there right away, they really built it and built it to the end of this first fall. Um, Aries goes for the small package. Danielson reverses it, and Aries kicks out. Aries gets a backslide by two. Um, a backslide for two, then a crucifix bomb, then the rings of Saturn. Then he does the full Nelson cattle mutilation, like the one that Danielson used to beat Loki. And Danielson actually taps out. And I thought like the the first fall, it kind of started like, where is this going? Um, but everything looked good. But that finish to the first fall, I thought was great. And I thought it was an upset for Aries to win after taking so much damage because Danielson was in control for most of that. So in some ways, it actually was kind of similar um, to the... Uh, to the first match, but, um, you know, the first two out of three falls match. But I thought that it ended up being a really good first fall. I don't know if you want to wait, save your thoughts to the end or if you want to do each fall. Um, uh, I can do a little bit of my thoughts. I, I thought um, the first fall – well, actually, maybe I should save my thoughts to the end unless you need a break from talking. No, no, no. no. I can, I can okay. go. Yeah. I can do it. My, I, I'm losing my voice, but I, I can do it. Um. Yeah, this match is like an endurance. This this match is so long; it's an endurance test just to podcast about it. Yeah, I feel like what was that finish? That was like the high twenties, right? The high, like your thirty minute mark, something like that, right? Maybe even later, maybe even forty it minutes. Was, it, was, it was later. I can go back and look. Um, let me just scroll back up on this crappy wireless keyboard. And this was clearly after Danielson had decided to call his audible. Um, and by the way, I didn't. I didn't think the crowd was bad. I thought the crowd got more into it as it went along. At least that's how it seemed on. Uh, on video, at least at, first, at least at this point, the first fault was forty-two minutes eight seconds in. Yeah, so, so they went deep before they even went to the first fall. But the crowd was not dead at that forty-two minute mark. They were into all those near falls and stuff. Um, so uh, they, they drink water in between, and Punk says that it's cheating because he's like, "I didn't get that in my sixty-minute match," which you know, fair enough. 
Um, yeah, he says uh, next time I want something like like Gabe says something like maybe next time you'll have a two out three falls match or something. And, and when you face Joe and Punk says something, I want water bought water next time and a fruit plate. He says, Yeah, well, you know what? He deserves that fruit plate. Yeah. So Aries picks up. He goes after Danielson's head and neck. And uh, he goes up top. Danielson pushes him to the outside, all the way onto a chair in the corner of the ringside area, and to the and into the guardrail. So that was pretty rough. And then Danielson's uh, going after Aries' leg, and Gabe's like, "This is what happened in the epic encounter, right?" He goes after the leg after losing yeah. the first fall, which is true. Um, there are there is definitely some symmetry there. And Danielson's throwing the leg into the guardrail. And a fan says to him, I thought you were a gentleman. So Danielson just looks at him and does like the regal pose where he puts his arm behind his back and puts two fingers in the air. Um, uh, So he goes back in the ring and gets that half crab on, the one that he pinned London – or not pinned, uh, made London submit to. But Aries reverses it into a roll-up. Dragon does the Indian death lock, pretty much every hold in the book he does. Um, Aries struggles the whole time, which I thought is a really good touch. Like He's just not letting Danielson put these holds on. He's struggling and struggling. And Danielson actually bridges back on the Indian Deathlock, which gets a big pop from the crowd and from Gabe. Um, and then Danielson turns it over. So what makes the Indian Deathlock, I guess, different from the figure four is that you could turn it over and it's you're still the one controlling the hold. Um, <laughs> but Ares gets to the rope. I really, lo- They really worked that Indian Deathlock. I really appreciated that. Like They did every single thing to make that Indian Deathlock entertaining the whole time. Um, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. He uses his legs to flip Ares over the top to the floor. And he goes – so this is a big moment. He goes for a tope, misses, hits the floor. Gabe yells, dangerous, which gives away that it's an injury because, you know, missing a dive happens all the time. Like you would not have watched that dive and been like, oh, no, this is an injury angle, right? Like, But Gabe yelling dangerous made it seem like it was, and then, of course, they sold it like it was. So this was almost a little bit of like work Nostradamus Gabe here where he knew immediately it was an injury instead of being like, oh, no, he's not getting up. So Danielson is down for a really long time, and Aries can't get him up, and he goes, is this guy just going to lay here for the rest of the night or what? I I, I thought he laid there for so long that I was like, shouldn't the ref just stop the match? Like, it didn't make sense to me that they just let it go like that. Well, Aries is even complaining at one point. He's like, the match will be stopped, and and then at one point when he's trying to get Danielson back in, he's even telling the ref, like – you know, you help me get him in then. Like, he's dead weight. Like, he's really complaining and getting mad about yeah. like, the situation they're in. Even the announcers are like, they should probably just, like, disqualify him. Like, he's letting too much go. Um, I thought this was a major flaw in the match, personally. Like, this took me out of it a little bit. Like, I get why they did it. You know, it's probably like a little bit of a breather, you know, a break in the in the drama of the match. You know, a new angle to let Daniels, t- let Aries take over more and change the course. But I think if they had just cut, like, three to four minutes off of the length of this, it would have been less egregious to me. I, I don't know. Um, but Danielson does come to. Aries throws him shoulder first into the post. Um, Aries does like a flipping splash and a cabrata for two. And uh, Danielson fights back with uppercuts, but a- Aries remain, uh, remains in control. So he's he's c- keeping the control here. Um, so Aries goes to elbow Danielson, but Danielson moves and Aries elbows the post. Like he puts Danielson right up against the post and does the elbow. I thought that made Aries look kind of dumb. Like, why would you do that right there? So, where like if you moved, you would definitely hurt yourself. So, this puts Danielson back in control, working on Aries' arm. But Aries does hit the brain buster. 
and a big his big swinging elbow, and that feels like a big moment. The crowd really is into that, but he only gets two. And we are officially past the hour mark here. Um, Aries escapes another brainbuster attempt and goes for the cattle mutilation, takes him down from the knee, um, uh, which was right after Punk suggests it, and hooks the hold. Um, and Danielson turns it into a roll up. Then, like you know, where he'll he'll do the cattle mutilation, flip back, roll up the arms, sit on the arms, and get the three count, and that makes it one one against one. Um, I I thought the second fall was a mixed bag. I thought that Indian deathlock was one of the highlights of the match. Honestly, I thought that was so cool. I really did not like the Danielson injury spot. Um, so I didn't. I don't think overall I liked the the second fall as much as I liked the first fall. Um, so the third fall is um, is a bit different. The crowd is up for it. Like they they just go all out. They're they're hitting hard shots. Aries fights off a superplex attempt and hits a big top rope DDT that gets holy shit chance. The crowd is absolutely awake at this point. Like there's no question they are into this. Um, it's not like the hottest crowd of all time, but they're absolutely into it. Um, they're dueling chance as Aries hits a series of body slams the way Danielson did at Survival of the Fittest. He does three, but then Daniels, then Danielson escapes the fourth one and hits a bunch of his own. And Danielson's are harder hitting than Aries to the point where he actually falls down after delivering one. Um, I like that. Like they like you know like Aries is trying to do a Danielson thing, but Danielson basically just shows him how it's done. Um, on the fifth body slam attempt, though, Aries rolls him into a small package for two. Um, then Danielson goes to the bear hug. So if you remember from Survival of the Fittest, he won by getting the bear hug and then almost like turning him over into almost like a Boston Crab type position in the bear hug. And and Punk notes that all the body parts Danielson worked on made it hard for Aries to get out of the bear hug because he can't, you know, power out with his arms. His neck is weak. His ribs are weak. So it's so like he built up to that bear hug spot. But Aries actually reverses it. Like he turns it into his own bear hug, which can you think of another match where you've seen a bear hug reversal spot? Uh, or like a bear or a bear hug reversal as like a big high spot? No, I mean, I, I've seen bear hug, you know, the bear hug gets broken a lot, but right. reversed into something else, I got nothing I can bring to mind. Yeah, like, and then, and then, and then um, Danielson reverses it back and tries turning it into that Boston Crab bear hug, but Ares grabs Danielson's ears and pulls himself up by Danielson's ears and headbutts him out of the hold. So one thing you can say about this match, there are spots in this match that I have never seen in any match ever besides this match. Pulling yourself out of a position by a guy's ears is one of those. And I, that, this is one of the things that I really appreciated about this match. They were just doing stuff you've never seen before. Not exclusively, but like, you know, even the trading of, of body slams. Like, that's a thing that you don't see really, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, Danielson does hit the big belly-to-back superplex. Aries kicks out, and, he goes, and Danielson goes back to the cattle mutilation. Aries gets his feet on the ropes. Danielson goes for another belly-to-back, but Aries knocks him off the top rope, goes for a 450. Danielson rolls, and Aries lands on his bad knee, and Danielson charges like he did once in a survival of the fittest, but Aries this time avoids it. He doesn't get the shoulder block. He avoids it and turns it into a backslide, which gets two. Then they both bounce off the ropes, trading forearms. Danielson grabs the leg and takes Aries down, but Aries kicks him in the head, and both are down, and the dueling chants come again. Danielson pops up with the big roaring forearm, but then collapses again. Um, and then Danielson gets up, but Aries pops up with his own roaring forearm, and then he collapses. Uh, he hits a super brain buster off the ropes, and Danielson actually kicks out. 
Then Ares hits two more Brain Busters. Then he does the 450, but before he does it, he touches the overhang to demonstrate how low the ceiling is. But he hits it. He gets the win. I thought the third fall was superb. I thought it was one of the, like, if you just take that fall, like, that's a five-star fall, in my opinion. The match itself, I wouldn't put up at that level, because I did think there were some flaws, um, especially in that second fall. But I thought they did a really good job. I thought it was innovative. I thought it was a great, great match. Not the match of the year, um, but I found it incredibly impressive. First, Matt, I just want to say, you did a great, great review there, and I felt for you having to talk that long. And um, uh, I'm now going to hopefully give you quite a bit of a break, and I hope I can do anything close to as good as that. But Thank you. There's a lot to say here. So I guess there's two ways. I almost feel like there's two reviews. There's the review of the match that happened, and there's reviews of the nature of long matches in general. I'm going to go over the match first, and then maybe we can talk a bit about just some – things I have to wonder about how people feel about long matches. But um, one my, my overall thoughts first, I, mean, I guess I'll do my overall thoughts first like you and then go into more detail. Um, Matt, I'm going to use one of my classic Trevor Dame food analogies. And I swear to God, I am not 500 pounds. Not that there's anything wrong with being 500 pounds except the obvious medical problems. Keep in touch with your doctor. It's just the way my brain works. But Yum. This – this match, Matt, is there. There's um in the world of uh, you're you are a vegetarian, Matt, because you're a better person than me. But <laughs> in the world of things like meatloaf and stuff, there's the idea of like a really good meatloaf requires some bread in the meat mix to make it into a meatloaf for texture reasons, moisture reasons, all sorts of things. You make what you would call a panade, Matt. You soak some bread in some liquid, usually some milk. You know, put that into the meatloaf mix now. Cheap meatloaf, they will sometimes call it prison meatloaf or things like that. It uses a lot more bread or in some cases cracker crumbs to kind of stretch out the meat. It, it, you get a bigger meat – you get more meatloaf without having to spend so much money on meat because more of the meatloaf is cheap bread, cheap crackers. Now, the thing people look down that meatloaf, because it's not because bread tastes bad or crackers taste bad. They taste good, but they're not – taste as good as meat. And so the idea is people look down those meatloafs because it's like you're diluting what's the real great part of this, which is the meat. Now, when I look at this match, Matt, it is a prison meatloaf where everything in this match is good to great. And there, there, there's a ton of great in this match, but the problem is there's a lot of, uh, there's a bunch of breadcrumbs in this match more than it needs. I feel like, like you talked about the third fall being a five-star fall. The, I think in this 76 minute match, there is a 45 minute match that would be remembered as one of the greatest ring of honor matches of this era. But there is also then another, you know, half an hour of breadcrumbs. There, there's a half an hour of things that are all entertaining to some degree or not, there's nothing that's bad in this match at all, but it's things the match didn't need, and it's diluting the impact of the whole match. And it's diluting, I think, how excited the crowd would be into it. Like, you go to that third fall, again, jumping ahead, that third fall has a ton of callbacks to the uh, the first match, and it has a ton of epic moments where 
guy hits a move and they're both selling for a long time and the crowd's giving it a fairly good reaction, but you can tell they're losing some energy and even Gabe on commentary acknowledges like they're getting that the crowd's trying to get exhausted. And I felt like I felt bad for the guys because they did not get the reaction. Some of those near falls, which were fantastic deserved. And some of those moments in that third fall because the crowd was exhausted because they had padded out the match with good stuff, but for the sake of making a long match. And, and, and that's kind of the way I feel. This is like a forced, in my opinion, like people are throwing on star ratings. You know, Dave said live reports at three and a half to four. We'll give ratings later of uh, what other reporters thought. I'll just say, I would give this like a four stars, but I think there is a five star or close to five star match in this match that is then extended past that. And because of that, I have to give it more of a four-ish, but there are so many great moments and you've gone over so many of them. There, there, there are a ton of great moments and callbacks and invent, like you said, inventive things like, like th this wasn't just guys doing every move they could they ever have done it once in their life and remembering it. These are guys like doing really inventive things just for this match. Like Danielson in particular, doing a lot of reacting to the crowd at different moments in ways you mentioned, like there is so much just really smart thing thought put into this match, but it's just, it's, it's too long. It's 76 minutes. It, it, that, that's, too long there's a reason like it's the difference between eating four slices of pizza and being forced to eat three large pizzas it, the pizza is still great it's just too much pizza but going over to that until like it's parts um that first fall it's over half the match and that's probably a lot of what you could cut out in the match is in that first fall i thought it built well but a lot of that early mat work even though it's really good mat work and i enjoy mat work you could have cut out without really hurting the story of the match. Like uh, looking at my notes, I think we're somewhere between 14 and 16 minutes in before the, what the commentators refer to as like the first big high impact move of the match. And I think it's 38 minutes in before we get a near fall that the crowd really pops for in a huge way. And I think that's one point to bring up is in some ways, like the fact that they announced every 15, that the crowd, that there'd be 60 minutes per fall would be the time limit. And every 15 minutes of this match, they did the time queue where they said, you know, 15 minutes has elapsed in this fall. Um, I think that might've been a mistake because I think that telegraphed it was going to be a long match. And like you said, just the way they were working, let everyone know right from the get go, it was going to be a long match, but I think that didn't help. And, and, and I, we've seen in other matches. I think when you let fans know right from the start, it's going to be a long match. The fans kind of pace themselves too. You know? Well, in, in the London match, they did that, but the crowd was so invested in Paul London that it didn't make that much of a difference. Yeah. I, yeah, that's that's a good point. That is an exception. I still think more often than not, it hurts. But no, that is, it, it can be overcome. I think what we can agree say is they didn't overcome it in this match. I do think the crowd was very tipped off early on that it was going to be super long, and you know they 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 the, the crowd was never out of this match. They they did dueling chance throughout parts. They 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 never felt like they turned on the match. They got loud for some parts that were big moments, but. I will say a lot of this match, there was murmuring. I don't, and I didn't necessarily do it as bad murmuring, but just this was a match where a lot of times it was, it was spread out and the crowd was also not 
they were not going to scream their head off or 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 be super loud and focused in every moment. But you're right. But I do want to mention I have seen ROH matches where I have noticed like that the crowd was quieter than this by a lot in main event matches that are considered great. Like for example. The Danielson versus AJ Styles match from Main Event Spectacles, where Gabe actually decided he was going to not do commentary. I remember thinking the crowd was not that good for that match. They were not that up for it. And I thought they were actually more up for this one. Similarly, the War of the Wire. But remember we talked about how crappy that crowd was? Um, but people don't usually t- take use that as points against the match. And I find it interesting that a lot of people notice it in this match in a way that I guess I just didn't. I don't know. And we can't speak for every fan because according to that one report, a few fans did leave during this match. So obviously there were some fans where you didn't hear their displeasure because they left the building. You know, they they didn't stick around. But um, going to what you said, I think a good way to put that would be we've seen matches that are like less than half the length of this that the crowd was quieter for or outright turned on, you know, that's because it was too quote unquote slow. And this crowd did not do that for a match that was far, far longer. So that is to the crowd's credit and it is to their credit. Um, so you get the third, first of all, and it builds, you know, Danielson does work heel, the heel stuff for Danielson. It's an interesting choice where he's jowling with the crowd. He's holding on. It's interesting because, Aries was the heel in Ring of Honor at this point. Danielson was Danielson was always pretty loved, you know, whenever he came back. And Aries was, you know, part of Generation Next, the cocky, cheating heel stable. And so it was kind of, I thought, a weird choice, even though I liked the stuff Danielson did do that was heelish. It also kind of melted away, I felt like, as the match went on. Like, about halfway through, when the match starts getting more, we're getting into bigger stuff, it's getting, you know, deeper into the match. Danielson kind of just drops whatever healer stuff early on. He's doing the, I have till five. He's doing the cheating with the abdominal stretch. You know, uh, there's a certain point in the match where he just turns that off for whatever reason. It's almost like Danielson was doing it to amuse himself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's so much of this match. I would love to ask Daniel Bryan about, or I keep calling down Bryan, even though he's Brian Danielson, but like, I would love, for example, like you referenced it, like I would love to know if he remembers when in his head he decided to change this match from the two hours and 40 plus minute thing he was planning on. Like I would love to know if there was a specific moment where he just said something's going on here. Something's not getting the reaction I need to. Uh, this is where we need to start changing things like it's and, and you know, he himself might not remember. I'd, I'd love to know that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, Danielson works on. On the midsection, the back and the stomach, with that great top rope gut buster, such a cool move. And I, I felt like the, they built well to the near falls in the first fall, and I felt like they had um, they had near falls worthy of the end of a match, just to end their first near fall. And something I thought of watching this match was the a quote I referenced a few times on on this podcast, where Samoa Joe on one interview shoot interview had this theory of wrestling where wrestling matches should only go up or stay at their current level. They should never dip down. So in terms of excitement, intensity, whatever, you should either stay where you are 
or raise it up a level and then stay at that level till you're re- ready to raise it again. You should never go back down. I think that worked. That's a good philosophy for many matches. I don't think that's a good philosophy for all matches, and certainly not a 76-minute match. Or two, or any two out of three falls match, honestly. Y- yeah, and, and I think a smart thing they do in this match is they find reasons to calm it back down. Obviously, having the breaks between falls helps a little bit, but also like after the first fall... Danielson, where, where they were doing these big time end of match, like near fall trades, and it feels like this is the end, and it's really exciting. They go back to Danielson doing the leg stuff, which you mentioned is one of the highlights of the match and really inventive, but it's not high impact, like crowds really probably going to think this is a finished kind of stuff. But it makes sense because the idea to me at the time, and I think Gabe kind of played up initially as this, was the idea. I thought Gabe did a great moment in, the, in that commentary where he directly tied this match to the Dan- or to the London match where he said, like you mentioned, Danielson did the same thing in the Paul London match. He loses the first fall, and then he starts going after the leg. And so it makes sense that Danielson is changing his strategy because whole first fall, he works on the midsection. He still lost the fall. Now he's changing, and he's going to the leg. And then later on in that second fall, when um, Aries hurts himself by elbowing the ring post, he changes the strategy again to the arm, and then he finally wins. So I like the kind of story that they had crafted, whether it's just in my head or how intentional. The story I like the story they made near the end of the third fall, where Danielson has the, in the bear hug was, oh, Danielson had worked over all these different body parts all along to set up for this because now Aries can't put his feet down in the Boston Crab because he hurt his feet and his ribs are hurt because he worked over his ribs and stuff. To me, the story I had kind of built in my head, which I I liked more, was and I thought was more believable, was the idea that. Danielson had to keep changing things in the first two falls because he wasn't winning. Like, whole first fall, his plan didn't work. He lost the fall. Second fall, the leg thing, you know, it's not really still getting him a win. So when the arm presents itself, and so he kind of just keeps shifting till he finds a way to put this guy down. Another thing I really liked was that they gave Aries, who wins the whole match, the first fall. Because so many two out of three falls match tip off the match because they have whoever wins the match full lose the first fall because that's the most dramatic way to do the match. You have the guy come from a one nothing deficit and win. But the problem is because, because that is the most um, naturally dramatic way to do that match. So many two out of three falls matches do that. So I really actually thought it was a clever idea where they didn't do it the most predictable way, even if that would have been a little more dramatic. Aries does not battle from a Oh one deficit. He, he wins the first fall. He loses the second. He wins the match still. So I like that. And then we get to the second fall. I actually did like the Danielson um, crash and burn spot. I, I, I like the drum. I like the difference. I thought it was another smart way. They worked a break and a, and a downshift in intensity into the match that, and get, had a reason for doing that. I can understand people who really didn't like that. And also, um, I sometimes read reviews of matches after I do my review, so it doesn't influence me, but I don't always even read other reviews. I did for this match, and I will say, Matt, you are far from alone. Uh, I think a lot of people who their biggest complaint of this match was that that break in the second fall where Danielson crashes and burns on a dive, and he just spends minutes and minutes, you know, what feels like minutes at least, selling it and, and and with the commentating debating if they should even continue it and what's going on and Aries getting frustrated. I, I did not dislike that as much as many people, I guess, seemingly dislike that. Um, leg stuff was great. I, I, I love that kind of leg trap stuff where he turns that Indian deathlock almost into a sharpshooter when their legs are still tied up. 
It's so good. Um, um, then the final fall, that's when I really started thinking this match should have been short. That's when I started thinking about prison meatloaf, Matt, because the whole third fall is like the epic fall where, you know, Danielson hits an elbow smash and they both collapse and sell for a long time. And Aries does the same thing and they both collapse for so long, for a long time. And that's where they do all so most of their callbacks where, and they do, this is a match where if you've watched survival of the fittest, they do so many great callbacks to all the major spots of that match. Like you mentioned the body slams, they, they repeat the, uh, the bear, the, the bear hug into the crazy Boston crab that finished the match. They repeat even at the very start of this match, Danielson goes for, uh, a handshake and Aries like tells him, I'm not going to shake your hand. And he points to his chin. And I think he says, something like, remember this. Cause if you remember in the survival of the fizz match, Aries had a legit like deep cut on his chin in, in that match. So they do a good job. If you've watched that match of giving you a bunch of fun and usually everything they reference, like all those moves, either Aries reverses them this time, or he does the move to Danielson. So I thought they did a really fun job of callbacks. And it's in that third fall though, where it's so epic and I felt like the crowd wasn't, even though the crowd, they never completely lost them. I just felt like they weren't getting what they deserved in that third fall. And if this match was 45 minutes and they gave them that third, like what you were saying, five-star fall, those, those fans, I think, would have been going out of their mind, jumping out of the seats. But because they padded the match, I feel like they exhausted the crowd and kind of hurt what they would have gotten. And... uh yeah, I, I, there, there's so many other things in my notes I could go into, but Matt, I, first I would just say, I, I, I think this the way I would put this match, other than just my simple rating that I said around four stars, would be, I think this is a match that I appreciate more than like I love. And I think the crowd felt that way too, because if you notice that, that point in that match where I'm complaining where the fans in the third fall aren't giving them the huge reactions to the near falls... The second the match ends, the crowd gives them like applause and a standing ovation and a cheer that is louder than almost anything they gave during that third fall. It's almost like, again, they appreciate what they did more than what they actually did. Like the idea of, we know you just wrestled a long time. We know this is special. We know how hard this is and we appreciate it. But maybe moment to moment, we weren't always with you like 110%. And that's kind of the way I feel about this match where it's like, it's something to be seen. It's a special thing, but it's an accomplishment, but it's not my favorite. I, if someone said, you just have to watch one of these two matches, the survival of the fittest final section, or which was like 20 minutes or this, I'm picking survival of the fittest, you know? Yes, I also am. I think that was the better match. Um, <clears throat> Like I said, this match is flawed, but I have to say, I I expected to have the reaction you had, which is like I appreciate it, but I didn't like super love it. But I really found myself captivated by it. I found myself very entertained uh, throughout the match, and I did not see that coming. I did not expect it to be so fun to watch, and it was because of those big moments and because of the innovative stuff. You know that that Indian deathlock that I never saw work like that. The crazy high spot bear hug that I never saw work like that with the pulling up of the ears, things like that. I just thought they did so much cool, different stuff, and I thought the execution was so good. Again, I don't think this was a match of the year either. There's just too many good matches that year. But I'd go higher than you. I'd probably go four and a quarter, maybe even a soft four and a half for this match. I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, 
and I was very impressed with what they did. I, I agree, the crowd probably would have been more up if the match was shorter, but I still think it's an accomplishment that the crowd was as alive as they were at the 70-minute mark. You know what I mean? Um, I, I did think it was a great match, and I might be slightly underrating it. Like, your rating might be more appropriate. I think one thing that's kind of factoring into how I'm rating it is I think I did, at the end, get a little frustrated on their behalf, just like... I really do feel like they had like a five star or close to it match within this match, you know, like, like the edited version of this would have gotten the bigger reactions and would have left that impact on people. And so it was almost like maybe I took it out on the match. Like it made me a little frustrated when really the match itself was entertaining me. Well, here's how I, here's how I think of it. Um, Maybe for them, you know, they both had their share of, like, incredible matches in their career, right? Um, Maybe for them, the fact that they have a great 70-something-minute match and were able to pull it off is more valuable than having the best possible perfect match they could have had on that night. You know, they had so many – they both had five-star or, you know, maybe, you know, not according to the Observer. But they both had, like, really top-notch matches multiple times in their careers, multiple times over the next couple years. Um, Possibly you could even argue they had one a couple months earlier with each other. But um, they never had another opportunity to do this. And I think the fact that they did it is something that they could hang their hats on, even if it wasn't the best possible match they could have had on that night. Um. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. That's something I wanted to actually talk about with you. I, I like I'm gonna ask you a question in just a sec, but I, I think like um a really good thing about this uh, well, a really interesting thing about this match is not every match the goal is to be like the best ma- wrestling match, like get the most stars, quote unquote or whatever. And I feel like especially when you read the background to the match and everything like that, like the goal of this match wasn't, I don't think, to be the best match possible. It was, oh, well, it was in that sense, but it wasn't to be the best match these two could ever do because they would have probably done a 45-minute match. The goal was to do the best super long match they could do because the idea was that a long, super long match would get attention and sell DVDs and, and all that. And I do think, and I'm going to put it to you, I don't think this match, if they'd done the 45-minute match I'm talking about, and they'd gotten like a bunch of four and three-quarter stars and whatever ratings and all that stuff instead of some of the lower ratings we're seeing, um, I don't think it would be remembered as much or have sold as many DVDs or have gotten as much attention. I, I think the selling point wasn't even the quality of this match. Like when people talk about this show, I remember, they weren't going, oh, that's the show with the great Danielson-Aries match. It's That's the show with the 76-minute match. Like, do you agree, like, if this match was technically better but shorter, do you think it would have gotten as much attention? No. I, it's, yeah. it's, it was a gimmick, but that's fine. It's wrestling. Yeah. You know, like, and, like, you got to sell, like, every DVD's got to be unique. They made this DVD unique. Look, look, when was the last time we talked about a match for this long? You know what I mean? Like, even now, you know, 16 years later, we're still giving this match its due because it was so long, because it's the longest match in... Danielson's career it might still be the longest match in ROH history. I'm not 100% positive about that, but I think so. Um, you know, one of the longest singles matches I've ever watched. Maybe the second longest singles match I've ever watched. I don't know. Because um, I did watch that Punk and Hero match. Um, but, yeah, I mean, no, I think that they made the right call. And yeah. um, and maybe it would have even been even better if they did the three-hour match. But who the hell knows what that would have been like. And that's another reason I feel kind of guilty for my rating because – I mean, 
I believe reviews should be a personal reflection of what each individual person thinks of whatever they're reviewing. But if you're a kind of person that thinks the match should do what it set out to do, I think this match is perfect because I think it did exactly what these, especially what Danielson set out to do, which is to get people talking to, you know, be a very good version of a super long match and to get Aries over. I think it accomplished everything. Like, like what you just said, um, look how long we're doing the review of the show. Look how I have so many quotes from all the newsletters and news sources talking about this match and what went into it behind it. Danielson, all those years after it, still thought to like specially talk about it in his book. Like there are so many great matches he had that or great Ring of Honor matches, period, that did get not get this much coverage and this much examination and this much thought. And you know, so in that sense, like who cares what I, th- I almost feel like who cares what I think about this as a wrestling match? Like it's an important it, match. Yeah. Yeah. It is exactly what it needed to be. You know, it, yeah. it, 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 it accomplished everything they wanted from it. When, when I, when we do our 2004 year in review, this will not be in my top three matches of the year, right? I can already think of three matches, that I would put ahead of it, right? I'd I put, yeah. put the survival of the fittest match between these two ahead of it. I'd put the first Joe Punk match ahead of it. I would put Joe against Jay Briscoe ahead of it. That's just off the top of my head. Yeah. And there's way more great matches to come this year. So uh, it's not that. But if you are a fan of this era of ROH, if you're a fan of Brian Danielson, if you're a fan of Austin Aries, um, if you're curious about indie wrestling at this time, I think this is a match you got to see, and I think you'll be able to keep your attention for the entire time without fast-forwarding, in my opinion. I was. Yeah. And, and that's another thing, which is there is going to be – what I said earlier about there's also a talk to have about long matches. Everyone has a different limit for how long they think a wrestling match should be. I know people that have no limit. I know people that say they don't even like 60-minute matches. I know people that say think I've seen people over the years that do not like 30 minute matches. I follow message boards for a side income. And I've seen people on wrestling message boards say that match was too long for TV. And I've looked up the match time and it was 12 minutes. So everyone has a different. And again, that's just comes down to personal taste. Yeah. I, I consider myself more of a no limit soldier, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, I, I do think there are going to be some people doesn't matter how good this match is. It's just not going to be their thing. You know, I, I do think going to what you said, if you were ever to like a 76 minute match, I think this is going to be, a. you know, if you don't like this match to some level, you're probably not going to like any 76 minute match. Cause I do think they do a good job. Yeah. All the, all those, all those other 76 minute matches, you should probably, you probably won't like any of them. <laughs> I mean, Trevor Lee did, I think over an hour and a half in the last few years on the Indies, but I think he had more bells and whistles. Like that's the other thing. This match doesn't have run-ins. It doesn't have plunder. It, it, it's just wrestling. The only thing you could even call a gimmick would be, I guess the crash and burn section, which basically gives them a few minutes to like time out. But there is uh, other matches that have gone long over the years have had like props to help pad it out. And these guys had nothing but themselves. That's right. Which again, uh, another huge, uh, you know, feather in their caps. And I, I felt like Danielson was the, I felt like every deserves huge credit for keeping up with Danielson after barely having any advance warning that we're going to go this long. But I feel like Danielson was the star of the show. He just seemed so comfortable doing this. Like he's just, I think he was what, like 23 or something at this point. Like it is crazy to think he was that young and he was like, yeah, 
I'm willing to try and wrestle for two hours and forty five minutes, and he wrestles for seventy six, and he feels completely at ease. I don't even think like, he was. I don't even think he was twenty three yet. Um, he might have been twenty two or something. I mean, he's thirty eight now, right? So it would depend on when his birthday fell. But I think he was born in eighty one and late in the year. But I'm going to double check that. Okay. Just because now uh, I'm curious. Uh, oh, I mean, May, he, May, I, May, May. You're right. So he was he was thirty. He was twenty three. He's born yeah. in May. Yeah. So still, technically, I would say that's the end of his early twenties. And you know, Aries is actually a few years older than him. But you know, Danielson comes off as the complete. You know, Aries comes off as the rookie who's trying to earn his way. Danielson comes off as just you know a veteran, really, a veteran. Yeah. yeah. And, and we've talked about this with Danielson before, but especially in this match, there is not one moment in this match where Danielson comes off as unsure of himself or struggling to figure out what to do. In or, my. Or, or, Sorry, in my review of the epic encounter match that we did, a lot, uh, you know, way back when, um, I don't even know how long ago it was now. Um, but I actually said that as far as like in the ring, as far as executing moves, as far as like being psychologically sound, when Danielson was 22 at that time, he, or excuse me, 21, I guess he was, um, he did not need to get any better than he was already like he was already as good as he ever needed to be he did get better and he got better at other things but he was already that good at that age and like that that still holds true he was all i mean he's one of the few guys in the world that can do a match like this and have it go come off as well as it did and uh you know i don't even know you know given all the injuries and stuff i don't even know if he could do that now maybe he's listening and he'll consider that a challenge but um you know, I don't even like. He was just so freaking awesome. I've said it like too many times on this show to to count, but he was. Um, yeah, I mean, if Danielson gets mad at this show, one, I doubt he's listening to it. But like, if he does, I mean, you can There should be no wrestler in the company should be less angry at us than because we have done. I mean, you will. We are two of the bigger Brian Danielson fans out there, and we have. I mean, just. Loved on that guy up the wazoo, Matt. And we haven't even gotten up to his like top run yet. <laughs> but but I would say about Danielson too, uh, um, expanding on your point, like I would argue he was probably one of the greatest wrestlers in the world, maybe one to two years in his career, and then kept that up for probably a good ten to fifteen years. Like who else can say that? He even got back to that level back you know when he was doing his heel title run in wwe last year like he was able to get back to that point for a little while like that's pretty remarkable in and of itself yeah i mean just and this is such an you know especially when you know the story behind this match it is just and again keep in context how young he was how early in his career he was it is just an incredible achievement what he did here um a couple of little funny notes um let me just see. Uh, oh, yeah. Did, did you, you probably mentioned this in the recap, but I remember that top rope elbow from Aries to the floor. I mean, even that, that's the kind of thing you wouldn't expect to see that in a 76 minute match. You know, 76 matches, you think, okay, you'll save the big spots for the last five minutes. You know, the fact that they were willing to do stuff like that in the middle of the match, you know, it's just crazy. Yeah, they, they, uh, they pulled out all the stops for this one, for sure. Um, the you you mentioned that I thought you were a gentleman. Oh yeah, I love this moment on commentary. Now I want to mention, I thought commentary was very good. I really loved. I think sometimes Gaze falls in the trap of he'll just reel off eighteen moments in Ring of Honor history and it just kind of numbs you. But I think he did a great job with that second fall where he really said this is just like the 
Paul London Danielson match. I thought that was a great example of Gabe at his best, where he picked one match and one moment, and he tied it in and made it make sense, and he didn't overwhelm overwhelm you with it. I thought Punk was a really interesting choice, the way it worked out, to have him commentate on this. Yeah, I feel bad for Mark Nolte because he was so excited about this match, and now he exactly. could he didn't get to commentate it. Yeah, clearly, if you listen to the last few show, watch the last few Ring of Honor shows, every time this match was referenced, Mark Nolte is clearly like in love with the first match these two had, and so it is kind of a sad thing that he doesn't get to commentate it. But I did think it was cool, like Punk is giving his perspective as one of the only guys who could from this era, who's like, yeah, I've wrestled this long and longer, so I can speak to the psychology behind a long match. So I thought commentary overall was very good for this match. I will say there is a moment in this match where let's see if I can uh, find it um, where Gabe says fans are going to remember this match for a long time and they're going to talk about it for even longer. <laughs> so I, I remember saying to you, Matt, so I guess they're going to forget about the match, but then still continue to talk about it. It's the rambling uh, ramblings of a demented person somewhere in like a in a home somewhere. And I will say Gabe did lean a little too hard at the end where he kept saying over and over again that this match that proves that wrestling is a sport. He just kept saying that. And I felt like you're leaning a little too heavy on that line. At least he didn't at least he at least he didn't say multiple times. They're testing the limits because 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 I would have probably. (laughs) But I did think overall this was one of one of a really actually good commentary performance from both men. I thought they did a really good job on yeah, that one. Gabe gets a bad rap for commentary and we certainly give him hell a lot of the time, but he definitely was good in his way. Like he definitely had his, uh, his qualities as a commentator. I, I think, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, although that would be a rare occurrence, but like we, I think we have fun point out like the full bowl, fully balls of Gabe on commentary. But, you know, I do think our general, I, like lesson on rewatching these has been, he is not nearly as bad as his rep was and not as bad as he, as, when you compare him to the earliest days of ring of honor commentary before he felt like he had to take the reins. I mean, a hundred times better than what we were getting. We've heard several announcers on these shows that were clearly worse than him so far. Yes. He is not the bottom three even so far. Yeah. And, and not, so, I, mean, I would say even not even just that, like it's even higher than that. Yeah, um, there was one moment in the match, if you're looking for flaws, where Ares uses an illegal fish hook for a submission, and Ref Hansen doesn't seem to know it's illegal, and instead just keeps asking Danielson if he gives up, and the refs even, like, call the, I mean, the commentators even call out Ref Hansen on that. I guess another neat little thing we should point out is, they actually changed refs for each fall. First fall was Ref Hansen, second fall was Todd Sinclair, and third fall was back to Ref Hansen again. So Yeah, that's right. Which was a neat way to put over the length of the match. It'll probably give those guys a legit break. Yeah, it's a legitimately good idea. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one other thing is um, I noticed one fan in the crowd, when Ares kicked Danielson really hard in the ribs at one point, a fan screamed out, Dangerous! So I love that the DVDs had come out enough that Gabe saying Dangerous had become – it had filtered to becoming a meme to the fans. That's right. I, I it was, it was totally over. It was, it, was the, it was that generation's oh my god. Yeah. Um, so finally, some thoughts from people in the wrestling media after the fact. Uh, I just got a few of them. We'll go to first. Uh, how about the PW Torch itself and Gabe himself, who uh, 
Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky commented on the Brian Danielson Austin Aries 80 minute match in the Ring of Honor wrestling forum. So I guess the tour just it's really the forums exclusive. But Gabe wrote, there are too many things that were great in this match to list. And I don't want to spoil it for you. He says, is this match for everyone? Probably not. But that's okay because real art isn't for everyone. I'll just sum up by saying it was just brilliant and a huge thank you to Brian and Austin. So, uh, by the way, by the way, like that sounds like hyperbole, but I actually think that's fair. I yeah. would ca- I would call this match art, like as far as wrestling matches go. It was there were definitely had artistic qualities to it. Well, also if you especially if you think of art as people taking a risk and taking a chance and doing something kind of audacious, this was art in a way most matches aren't because it was guys taking a risk and at least trying to do something they weren't sure they could pull off. And in a way, they didn't pull it off because they didn't do their original plan, but they still did something that pretty much no one else of their generation has done except a couple guys. Right, exactly. So, yeah. Um, next up, we got The Observer. and his Dave's thoughts on this match kind of trickled out from live reports and things because in, in one of the initial Observers, Dave first did that star rating he got from the live crowd, three and three quarter to four or whatever. Then he does here in one issue. He goes, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm told that the on-videotape version of the Danielson versus Airy 75-minute match that is a match worth going out of your way to see as a classic is that it's far better on tape than it was live. And I, I, I could see that being true. Yeah. And then later Dave finally does get to see it. And he writes, I saw the August 7th ring of honor, Philadelphia show with the Danielson versus Aries 75 minute match. It's something to see if you are into long matches because there haven't been a lot of matches that long in the past 25 years. It wasn't as if the crowd was going nuts as they were during the last 15 minutes of the 60 minute CM punk versus Samoa Joe match or for other long matches in ring of honor. They were quiet. You could see that they were into it. And when it was over, gave a big standing ovation. It made logical sense and was paced well, but it's really only for a specialized audience as a more casual crowd wouldn't have the patience for it you can't help but be impressed with the effort particularly in doing so many top rope moves with the low ceiling causing them to have to modify some moves like superplexes and it's not like they shied away from them i'd probably go three and a half stars for it but i watched with some friends who were casual fans after smackdown and they liked it in spots but overall it couldn't capture their attention so that's Dave's review. And see, you thought I was maybe a little low on four stars. You uh-huh. gave it three and a half. No, I remember. I remembered that. But I. That's what when I saw it, I liked. I was surprised by how much I liked it. Yeah. Just based on some of those, you know, less than rave reviews. And uh, like, like when I like when I talk about what I was impressed with from the match, would the thing that you would know would be like, oh yeah, they did all these top rope moves with that low ceiling. Like, would that be the thing that really stuck out to you? I not. It definitely wouldn't be for me. No, I think if you listen to our review, that's far from our emphasis on this match. You know, um, Mike Johnson wrote, he, he, uh, let me see what Mike Johnson wrote. He said the fans were chanting match of the year when it was over. I wouldn't go that far, but the effort that both put out there was simply incredible. This is a match that was decent live, but once you get a chance to sit there on video and pay close attention, will come off so much better. Um, I don't think anyone who came to see good wrestling was going to complain, although I really would have liked to see how the longer match would have gotten over with the crowd and what they would have pulled out of their bag of tricks. Perhaps Ring of Honor can go with an empty arena match and they will get the chance down the line. So Mike Johnson also predicting the future of COVID-19. Um, but, but it's interesting. Like I, I would, I'd be, I mean, with WWE doing all these experiments, right? Yeah. If, if you're going to have these shows anyway, you might as well try something crazy like that, right? If you said, okay, Daniel Bryan, let's do a three-hour match or, or whatever, and he had to be with someone in WWE, who would you pick? 
Who do oh. you think could do it with him? Oh gosh, you're really putting me on the yeah, spot. Yeah. That's uh, uh, Drew Gulak. <laughs> um, Sami Zayn. Um, Sa- Sami Zayn. Sami Zayn. In many cases, I would have said yes. I don't. Is he? Is he too banged up to handle that right now? Maybe. I mean, if we're just going for recent opponents, Cesaro maybe. If yeah. we're allowed to go into oh yeah, NXT, Cesaro would probably be a really good choice, honestly. If we're allowed to go into NXT, I mean, we know guys like Adam Cole, Roger Strong, Gargano, and Ciampa can do long matches. Although I wouldn't want all the theatrics they've had in some of their recent matches. I mean, games, we we but, but we know that Danielson and Roger Strong have good chemistry, and they've done hour plus match or you yeah. know, right around there. So yeah, like, right around there. Yeah, so in terms of guys that prove, so yeah, I think Andra- Andrade. I don't know if how many long matches he's done, but he did some. He did definitely a pretty long one against uh, Gargano. And of course, the Undertaker. You know, <laughs> I think he could definitely go two hours forty five minutes. <laughs> a, a, you know, a three a three hour boneyard match. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, so yeah, the and the show ends. Another interesting twist is because the match was so long, this is pushing it right up against three hours. The show ends with the crowd giving a round of applause. Aries goes to the back without getting a handshake. The house lights actually come on. They actually show us this. Then Danielson eventually makes his way to his feet. The crowd chants "Thank you" and fade to black. So most shows end on a uh, you know series of behind the scenes promos or at least some kind of big angle, and this is just kind of you just see the natural aftermath of the match, and you're just kind of left to sit with it. And that's the way the show ends. It's the right. So, way. It's the right way to end it, in my opinion. Yeah, and uh, that's the show. That's testing the limit, and uh, it tested our limit. Yeah, me- uh, I think both of us are starting to lose our voices a little bit. I can definitely hear mine, um, Matt. It's always weird when you review a show that where one match is such a big chunk of it because it's almost like sometimes it feels like. Whatever you think of that match is basically what you think of the show. You know, I mean, this match we include the post match, the entrances and stuff was almost half the show. So, but what do you think about the show as a whole? Given that half the show was what we just talked about. Well, you know, you think of a lot of shows as one match shows. There are actually a lot of ROH shows in 2004 where you just remember one match. Um, so I went into this kind of just thinking, well, I don't care about anything else on the show. But I have to say. The show as a whole, like the non-Danielson Aries stuff, was pretty good. Like it was pretty entertaining. The undercard matches were fast-paced and fun. Scorpio's appearance, what to me was a pleasant surprise. The Rottweilers versus uh, Briscoes was a good match. The only thing that I really didn't like that much was the tag title match. Um, And the main event I thought was fantastic and super memorable. So I thought this was another winner for ROH. I thought this another in the streak of just like very good shows that they put on. Um, And I would actually say... You know, even though there was only one like really memorable match, I would say from top to bottom, this card was entertaining and it did have the great match to put it over the top. So solid thumbs up for me. Me too. I I would the way I would put it is uh, the undercard is not good enough to go buy the show for the undercard, but it's good enough if you're buying the show for Danielson Aries, it's good enough to watch the undercard too. like don't skip ahead to the main event unless you're really pressed for time. If you're watching a 76 minute match during a pandemic, I'm going to guess you're not pressed for time. So it's worth watching the whole show. The whole show is good enough to warrant a watch, but obviously the selling point is, and, and I think it's worth everyone, unless you absolutely know right now, if you know you really hate long matches and you just know that in your heart, I don't think this is going to win you over. But if you've ever thought you might like a 76-minute match, I think it's worth at least trying it because it's just such a 
rare thing in modern wrestling. You know, there's only been a few examples of matches this long or longer that, you know, you should give it a try, I think. Definitely, I definitely agreed. I can't imagine somebody enjoying this era of ROH not enjoying this match. You might not think it's like the best thing you ever saw or like French Toast number three or anything, but you, <laughs> but you will appreciate what they did here. And I think it'll hold your attention. So um, that, will, that brings us to the end of the show. So for plugs, um, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Trevor Dame. I'm spelled D-A-M as in Mother E. Sometimes people think Dane because they sound the same. Uh, at Mayor MGF for Matt. Through the years at gmail.com is our email address. That's T-H-R-O-H for through. Uh, we have a on the plugs forum, on the Pro Wrestling Only forum, we have a thread for the show. And Again, just a reminder that we've done a ton of podcasts recently where Matt and I were on the five-star match game with Joe Gagne, who you may be seeing very soon hearing on our show soon in the future. Um, I'm on who's next for the next Ori for one episode on for three more. Matt's done other shows with the pro wrestling super show with us, Stephen Graham in recent months that you should go listen. Matt's original show, list them and learn. Like if you're listening, looking for podcasts and we've done three in like the last less than a month there's plenty of us to listen to to go back and listen to if you need more company during this trying time we're here for you um and the next show we will be covering is oh and of course my dumb patreon www.patreon.com slash mecca mecca m-c-a m-e-c-c-a do that twice in a row it's stupid you probably don't want to spend money on it that's my plug um until next time uh we will be covering on our next show Scramble Cage Melee, which is a show that has a giant Scramble Cage match with a million high flyers where you have to dive off the cage to eliminate somebody else. So it should be crazy. It also has Homicide versus Samoa Joe versus CM Punk in a rare big time ROH three way where the winner gets the rights to be the icon of Ring of Honor, an honor so prestigious that no one remembers it ever happened. So uh, We'll remember after next time. Yes, we will remember at least for a few weeks, maybe, after the next time. Matt, do you have anything else to say in these troubled times? No, I'm, I, I'm having a lot of fun you know, banging these shows out, though, and I, um, I'm looking forward to watching the next one. I'm going to get on that ASAP. I, um, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to getting to some of these big events in the fall of 2004. Um, Living as though I am in 2004, that way I can be disappointed by George W. Bush getting reelected uh, all over again. I am going to now have to run to a grocery store before it closes in 45 in half an hour, and hope I don't die. Uh, well, have a good well have a good time and have a great time when you're there. Yeah, and I'll wash your hands. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.